Ed, how are you? Hello, David. How are it's you? It's after taking a while to get the two of us in here at the one time. It's taken a while, yeah. I've been sort of hanging around outside the front door. How was your Christmas? Uh, pretty good, yeah. yeah. Relaxing. Too much too much beer. You're looking very food. fresh now for a lad that says you're after getting too much beer. I was in the gym just before I came out, so yeah. So Home gym or in the gym? Home gym, yeah. That's the gym. only way to do it. Yeah. That's the only way to do it. Push this right in. Pretend that it's it's a penis. <laughs> I, I, I can't usually get it this close to my face. I'd have to throw it over my shoulder. <laughs> if you're wondering why I'm looking so fresh here. Yeah. So I went home and my beard was looking a bit unkept. And I have a little razor. And Clark or someone must have took the plastic thing off it for, you know, the dictating how yeah. long it is. And I just had one line gone down it. And then I just said, oh, I may keep going. And then I looked like a rabid dog. Well, that's the only time I ever look fresh like that is when I actually slip with a razor or I do something oh, wrong yes. and I have to shave the rest of it it's, off. It's yeah. horrible. Yeah. I feel, and after I shaved, I came out with these, this rash and ugh, never shaved again, ever. You need to start getting your sort of male grooming do you shave? Together. Do you shave clean? Oh, not so much anymore. No, I don't. I don't. Did you ever have to? Uh, work? I did, yeah, all the time. Yeah, years ago, yeah. But, um, Choice or had to? Uh, no, I never had to. I was never one of these guys who got up, uh, got up for, out of bed in the morning, went to school, and by two o'clock of the day, they had like a um, full beard. No, that wasn't me. No, genetically, we're not that hairy in my family for some reason. Like, You're hairier than him. A little bit hairier than him. Yeah. I only found out tonight that he's what's what's it called? Uh, alopecia. Alopecia, uh, but not on his balls. Yeah, not on his balls. So I managed to keep the hair in my head successfully so far, <laughs> uh, but I don't know how long that's going to last. You know. Well, Ed, I suppose, like, uh, by any metric, you're a successful man, right? And I like to do podcasts and I like to chat to people on their journey to where they get to. And uh, and success can be determined in loads of different ways. But where are you from originally? I am born and reared in Tala uh, originally. So I was from a place, Belgard Heights in Tala. What's that like? Um, fairly average. Like, it was a housing estate of around 300 houses in just on the outskirts of Tala. It was funny growing up because people, when you're in when you're in Belgard where I lived, people used to think that that was the posh part of the whole Tala. So everybody used to think, oh, they're the posh people living there. But then when you when you told anyone else that you were living in Tala, you were just living in Tala. They didn't yeah. seem to give a shit. You know, they thought it was all rough. You know, it's actually funny today because I, I I or yesterday I was down in the I was down the area down in Ballymount with my sons. They wanted to go and uh, buy airsoft guns or something. There was an airsoft shop, and uh, we were nearby Tala. They saw a signpost for Tala, and they went, oh. That's Tala. And I said, well, do you want to go up and have a look? And he says, yeah, I want to go see all the burnt out cars and all the horses on fire and stuff. And I said, well, um, okay, I'll bring you up. There's no horses on fire. None. No burnt out cars. Jeez, no. if you've seen a horse on fire, that'd be dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> so I brought them up to my old house where I used to live and pointed it out to them and everything. And I couldn't get over. I was driving actually up to the street where we were. And I said, Jesus, somebody's after building in that field. And uh, that was right beside the house. But I just didn't realize that the, the, how, the, the field where I grew up was, was just really, really small. And when I was a kid, it just looked enormous. So. Yeah. But yeah, but back, lived there for 16 years, yeah, born and reared. And how many in your family? I've uh, a brother and a sister and uh, mom. My father passed away uh, a long time ago now when I was 18. What did your parents do for a living? My dad was, uh, in, he he eventually settled as a, settled on uh, security alarms and access control and gates and things. He had a company that he set up probably, I think I was maybe, around six or seven when he started that but for years before he did a range of loads of different things he was in the army he was a radio operator in the army he was a 
he, my mum used to say that he had all sorts of jobs like mixing paint, fiberglass, manufacturing, different things. Eventually set up his own business and my mum worked at home, worked with him doing that. She was the sort of did all the bookkeeping and finance for him. And growing up, like he was, uh, he did like, he did alarm systems for garages, uh, for access control, gates, security systems, all that sort of stuff. So we always used to be dragged out when we were kids to work crawling through the With forecourt them. yeah we used to work we used to we used to laugh at us because we used to get paid a fraction of what the apprentices got paid he's got paid like 20 pounds a week or whatever the apprentices would be getting around 45 but we'd be doing the same amount of work or being abused more by yeah. uh, by the lads but we were always working as kids and were you the youngest i was the awkward middle child no i had a younger sister uh she's two years two and a half years exactly between all three spoiled rotten spoiled rotten got away with murder got away with murder yeah always yeah yeah and what was school like school was fairly uh normal like i had a i had a school there was a school literally just over our wall uh a local uh a local community school that's the that's not the primary school now is it uh the primary school yeah we yeah. went to a primary school literally over the wall and then secondary school my dad wanted us to he was determined for us to go to a private school wanted us to go to uh Terenure. um just because he never got that opportunity he never went to school he left school when he was around 13 his father his own father died and he was the eldest hmm. and uh he had to go out and work so he wanted us all to go to uh to to, to a good school and did he did so he, he yeah he did he shipped us off i think my brother i think my brother was he applied to get my brother in and he was rejected because he put in he was an electrical engineer or something and then he changed on the application form for the application into school to say that he was a managing director of a security a security company why had they notions about who to let and in and they didn't they he got in then well yeah so so my brother my my seven brother we were shipped off down into temple oak then we went did to, you have to stay there uh, home. Oh no, it wasn't boarding or anything. No, it was just day school. So we got the bus down from uh, from Tala every day and just got the bus down and uh, bus home. The evening time, we're forced to walk the two kilometers up the road. Your your mother, particularly, she turn up for you sometimes, you know, but not always, you know. And how do you remember school? Uh, school was kind of a ha- like primary school was a very happy time with a lot of uh, really really good friends and still still have some of the same friends. I was actually out with one of them last night, a close friend of mine that I know since I was around seven. Um, uh, it was funny because the the field that I told you about a few, a few minutes ago, uh, he was, uh, it was a very small, very very small field, but looked enormous back then. But I remember, uh, it was a really really windy day, and I picked up the lid of a kettle was just lying on the top of the ground, as it, like, as it does, as in a so field. <laughs> I picked it up and threw it up into the air, and, and the wind caught it and flew across the field and. Cloxum, poor unfortunate. Ta-da, fella. That's your friend. Yeah, <laughs> Cloxum, poor unfortunate fella in the head and split his head open. Jeez. So um, yeah, so I was mouthing off two or three years later about how I got away with like smashing some kid on the head with a with a kettle, and it turned out to be this fella Dave. Away. So he <laughs> lived not too far from. He either. just lived across the road. Yeah. So when we we all the kids like were living in the same housing estate or close, and we're going to the same school. So we kind of knew everybody and still to this day I have probably four or five of these people that I'm still friends with now. That's cool. Yeah. Secondary school as well. I made a good few friends. Another guy. I only have friends who are called Dave, by the way. All my best friends are called Dave. That's, I know that. It's yeah, a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> I, have two, I have two best friends called Dave. Yeah. From different. One from secondary school, one from primary school. And uh, I'm met, David, by the way. So I don't yeah, fall under that criteria. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. I met you later in life, yeah. David. Yeah. Post school. <laughs> but um yeah, so secondary school was was grand as well, sort of uneventful, you know. So it was and what what were you into? 
what topics like what subjects um, did you I, like? I was a sucker for punishment in in secondary school i did all the science subject my brother was always into my brother was into science so i kind of said oh, i was into science too i was really good at maths so uh I loved maths. Even my wife, I told my wife that recently. I think about going back and doing doing some study in maths. I just thought I was a complete another sicko. So but <laughs> I used to really enjoy, like, enjoy Sudoku and things like that, yeah. and math stuff, and enjoy doing the stuff with the kids. Actually, still, but um, yeah, I did physics, chemistry, biology, applied maths, maths, and then a couple of languages. Eventually, when I was doing me, a couple uh, of languages. Yeah, what languages? Two, German and French. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And uh, can you speak them now? Not really, other than to go up to randomers when you're in Germany and go, ich habe eine grosses Wurst, just for the effect. Yeah. Like you just do, that's about as much. And, or you la Bibliothek. I was actually going to get a tattoo on my arm. Done that's a dicey uh, thing, getting a tattoo on your arm, isn't it? Yeah, well, just in some random. So we, have you any tattoos? No, I don't. No, None? No, no. How did you get away with no tattoos? Were you ever tempted? Uh, not not recently. I mean, maybe it's the midlife crisis thing, I don't know. But yeah, I might be. I might get one too. I might get one at some stage, yeah. So when you were in school, did your mom and dad want you to be certain professions or were they pushing you towards certain No, careers? not really. No, the only thing like they were they were very good that way. They just were like they were really good parents, really supportive, sort of they were they struggled in the early days. They didn't have a whole lot of money. Um, we they must like have it, put themselves under a lot of pressure putting you to private school. They did. Yeah, yeah. They didn't really have a lot of money then. They only started to make a few. My dad only started to really make it and make a few quid later on when we were teenagers, you know, and uh, but he struggled at the beginning. And my brother, he was a victim of the 80s as well and that he got let go a good few times, eventually set up on his own. My brother, one of my brother's earliest memories of was my dad in the mid 80s being at home all the time thinking this was brilliant playing Atari, <laughs> but he was actually just unemployed at home. Jeez. Stay at home, dad. Uh, but they did. They struggled to get us there, you know. But got us, got us through it, you know. I wasn't uh, like I, I. Um, sorry, what was you? What were you asking me again? What was that question? What were they pushing you into? Like, what did oh, they yeah. want you to do? Or? They never, they never really pushed me into anything. They just wanted us to get good grades and study and work hard and stuff. So and to get an education because my dad didn't have one. So he wanted. He was a very clever guy, but and my mum very clever as well. But they never had got that sort of opportunity. My mum had to leave when leave school as well. Her own mother died when she was eight, and she had to move away and uh, move in with aunties. And uh, she had to. She was cooking dinners from the time she was eight or nine. Jeez. for people she didn't really have she didn't have the same opportunity for an education either so they just wanted us to do something and stay in school and get a college education and were you close family yeah yeah we were a very close family yeah we kind of like my dad died when i was around 18 and we i always thought to myself how lucky and privileged we were up till then because mm. we went all over the world we did lots of different things my dad was big into traveling um from the time we were like around four or five used to sort of bail us into the back of a car and drive to France in the summertime. We always had a, a summer holiday yeah, going somewhere different. So we'd been, by the time I was like, my teens had been all over Europe really for summer holidays in different places, just on on a budget into the ferry and go in the back of a car. Do you think traveling plants a seed when you're young? Yeah, I think it broadens your mind, I think, you know. So what they did, they just wanted me to, wanted me to, to work hard and to do something in school like from the age of around three all i wanted to be was a helicopter pilot i, I wanted to leave school and become a pilot and i wasn't it wasn't these sort of fleeting things that i was mm. it was it never stopped i was right the way up till 16 years of age i was talking about leaving school getting a cadetship in the in the air corps and i had a, a shoe in as well because my dad had contacts in the army and mm. i was able it was a shoe in to getting into the air corps to fly helicopters 
So when you were in your last couple of years in school, what were you pushing towards yourself? Uh, I didn't really know. <laughs> I didn't really know. Like I, I pulled out of the, I pulled out of the opportunity, the option to go into the air corps when I was younger because I kind of got disillusioned with the way flying was going. I thought I was just going to end up being a glorified bus driver if I did end up going down that route. Uh, and then, why? What way was flying going? Uh, it was just changed like the Ryanair the way Ryanair was going now where people are just sort of commuting flying rather mm. than it was probably more glamorous and exciting and interesting years ago but then it was like just more sort of commercial hard slog commercial get up go somewhere come back and mm. don't think I really wanted to do that in my own head I sort of was probably watching too much Airwolf and too much of that the sexiness was, was gone over yeah yeah, yeah. Too much, yeah I was watching the A-Team with Mad Murdoch flying around <laughs> helicopters in the A-Team and thinking that this is the way it was going to be get no play get no play um, yeah so uh, I kind of I didn't really have any specific aspirations to do any, anything particularly particularly when I was younger of that age like I was just kind of getting through it you know when I was 16 like we moved house to we moved when my, my mom and dad moved to Temple Oak where they built a house when I was around 16 and moved out of Tala and uh, when I I living down there I started volunteering and um, I did one of these presence awards things I started to Know, the Gashka Presence Award thing. Oh. You had to do sort of. Uh, it was it was a really cool thing. I think my daughter was saying that she was she might be doing it. Was pushing her towards. But you had to do some work experience. You had to learn a new skill, like learn a mu- musical instrument or something, and then do some voluntary work. So I got a I got a voluntary position working in Cheeverstown, a learning disability service in in um, in Dublin, just volunteering at a disco. Uh, basically, every Wednesday night, it was a social club for people learning disabilities in Temple Oak, and. Uh, we went there and hung out and volunteered and I never left. I stayed there for probably around five or six years uh, throughout college. And just loved it. Just loved it. You just had a great group of friends and I, the, the guys and girls that were there who were availing the service were just lovely people. And we had friends with, with some of our friends had learning disabilities. We used to see them regularly. They were uh, just great crack. And uh, I actually got taught. I, I, learned, I learned. I was only thinking about this earlier, but I learned to DJ. Uh, back then <laughs> but i but i learned to dj uh i i was taught by a guy with down syndrome this guy called joe dj joe uh, and did he dj there as well he did he dj'd all the time he had this all sort of set of groupy girls he used to follow him around and everything and he was just he was he was like the king of dj and he used to be able to mix with tapes that's brilliant with tapes and he had a little waistcoat and the whole lot and uh he was an absolute gentleman but he had he ran this disco every for two hours and it was the main sort of social scene and the stuff that used to go on that was just hilarious. Like that just be uh, that was their night out, yeah. and uh, we were there to help and support and to volunteer and to get them going to clean the place up afterwards and everything. But um, it was a great social outlet. Like mm. we had, we made loads of friends and still to this day, loads of friends. But um, doing that, but that's why I did that for a couple of years, mm. and then because of when I was in school, I actually managed to get a job doing it. Then because because of the fact that I was uh, doing it voluntary uh i got a job working for the hse or a sort of a crisis service working as a one-to-one with this office. is before you left school yeah before i left school all the way through i always had jobs like myself my brother and my sister we always had jobs so we worked from the time we were probably 13 14 we worked for my dad during the summers and then and um, we always had a part-time job so from petrol stations i worked in petrol stations worked in joel's on the main road washing dishes um, but we pretty much we always had a few quid for a few pints, you know. So mm. we were the only ones with with money most of the time because we worked. Like my my mom and dad had a strict sort of thing about cutting us off when we were sixteen. No more money, no more pocket money. <laughs> They'd be telling you that. Oh yeah, yeah. You're you're no more pocket money. You're you're cut off. That's it. You go get a Figure job. Figure it out, Ed. Yeah, yeah. Go get a job. Yeah, yeah. So we were 
you'd be hopping on your bike and cycling down to the, the Greenhills Road from Tallet to be there for six o'clock in the morning to put petrol in cars or to wash cars or a job working on the tills then. So all through school, we had some sort of a job. All of us had. My brother was uh, my brother was a lounge boy in the Red Cow. He was around 20. He used to get sexually harassed all the time by old ones. Yeah, pinch on the arse by women walking around. I'd imagine that because my, my <laughs> brother has a band and... He used to play at the Red Cow and mm. serious shit used to go on there with old people. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. He, he was like 17 or so. He was sort of good looking young fellow, but he used, to, he used to be smacked on the arse all the time <laughs> walking by. <laughs> did he feel that he was being like manhandled or did he care? I, did, I, think, I think he was a bit perturbed by it given the age of the women at the time. I can't remember him describing it as a very enjoyable experience looking back, you know. Yeah, imagine. You know, he laughed. Although there's uh, some sickos have a saying they're the same opening as the are closing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that <laughs> and come here um, so you're in school you're leaving cert you don't really know what you're doing do you or do you have an idea no I kind of I kind of had an idea like my brother was into science and I kind of looked up to him a lot and I wanted to like, and I was thinking to myself look I'll go off and do pharmacy or something because it seemed to be sort of interesting given all the science stuff that I was doing um, like all through uh, like the, the voluntary jobs and the sort of working for the, the, the side jobs was always there but I was still looking to uh to get some sort of thing in college so but i i was i was like straight a student all the way through i was getting re- really top grades all the way through but i was really lazy i had really poor attention span so you were able day. to do that without even trying yeah i had terrible attention span hey people like yeah, you yeah i couldn't focus and if i lost interest in something like i'd 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 have to i couldn't wrote learn something off but if i understood something once or if i saw it i'd be able to do it again if you had interest in it yeah i had an interest in it i'd do it but if i had no interest in it <clears> you couldn't force me to do it so I, my leaving cert was a complete and utter mitigate disaster. I got like I think I got I got uh, five hundred and sixty points in my mocks, and I got around three forty in my leave, and then because I just completely lost interest. I didn't want to do it anymore. And four or five months beforehand, I just uh, were your parents raging. They were. They were kind of uh, a bit pissed off about it. Really, yeah. were you raging yourself? Not really. No, because I kind of just went. I just lost total interest in it. I wasn't, but bo- I wasn't that uh, bothered about it. And uh, even filling out the the CEO form, it was kind of, uh, I had all the things that I wanted to do. And I was so sort of my own arse at that p- point, uh, I thought that, Asher, look, there's no point in messing around with the diploma courses. I'll just fill that out for the crack. So I put all stuff that I had no interest in doing. And I eventually got, I think I got offered forestry management in Carlo. I think that was what Says, I Thank God be. you didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> so I was nearly, I nearly, I was forced to the, the option of going to Carlo, moving to a place that I didn't, uh, I didn't know I'm doing that, but then I got offered a second, uh, second choice in um, second choice as a in software development. Yeah, so I took that. No interest in that either. Just ended up just doing it. Just doing it. Yeah, in a course. Yeah. So what did you do then? Did you actually end up doing software? Yeah, I did. Development? I went software development. Yeah, and uh, but like tragically in the middle of that, like I was only I think I was only in college around. I think I was only in college around four months when my dad died, and that had like I just had just lost complete interest was it sudden really sudden yeah he was died of a heart attack yeah yeah one tuesday afternoon after coming back from training and it was a, bizarrely we were all there myself my brother and my sister my mom were all there and we were all teenagers like when my sister was probably 16 at the time i was 18 and my brother was like 20 but normally we'd all be out or someone mm. would be out but he just uh yeah i was sitting in the sitting in the kitchen or i was sitting in the sitting room uh, and he'd come back from train, and after like typically he'd he'd go off to sort of train and to pool train. He was a scuba diver, 
and uh, he'd be pool training twice a week and he com- just came in sort of handed me a chip sandwich after coming in from the pub after two pints and then went out I heard sort of weird noise outside and then he was collapsing the ground so. and you seen it oh yeah we we sure we had to give him CPR we had to had to try resuscitate him and it wasn't successful though so so that sort of affected a lot of that that, that must of, have been horrific it was horrific for all of us yeah the time yeah so and that kind of sort of derailed me a lot mm. I derailed all of us, derailed my sister and my brother, like my brother struggled to cope with it for, but he was trying to be the, the man of the he house. was trying to be the man of the house, you know, but it was very hard on him, you know, and very hard on my sister as well, because she never really is there, and she never had that sort of opportunity to be sort of free and get a job and get out, and she was just a kid really, when it happened, uh, but we were all there when it happened, you know, so, I mean, my mother, my brother was just on the verge of moving out, uh, I think he moved out around a year or two later, and I was in college, so my college, I had a, I had a job at the time. I think in Smith's Toy Store, I had a, a like a job in the till there, and that kind of fell apart a bit. But they were brilliant; they were very supportive and helped. But my college just completely fell apart. Then I know. Can you remember really all that like it was yesterday? You can. Yeah, it's like twenty five years ago actually. So it's it's still sort of raw. It's not. It doesn't. It's it it still hurts, but like like that time heals all. You know. So yeah. I became very sort of fla- like it, it, it sort of changes your sort of flavor and opinion about you can be very desensitized about old people dying you know like you'd you'd, you'd kind of i remember as a kid you'd be really insensitive to well like sure this mm. person died and they were that age and this person died and they were 40 or they were young and so you'd uh but the, like to, to be honest with you a lot lot of lot of the, like that sort of experience really if i like i was only a kid i was yeah, 18 yeah. and you develop all of these sort of uh opinions and behaviors and i can't imagine how tough that'd be yeah like when you're young because I only lost my father this year. And I was only saying to Matt before, because I was only, I was working flat out since then. And you're only processing it when you, when you relax and you chill out and you're not thinking about it. And I was only thinking, you know, it's because your father is the only man alive that wants you to do better than him. Kind of, you know, you, so you, you lose that father figure. It's a bit weird. You feel a bit alone after it. Mm. But it must be horrible when you're young. Mm. It wasn't, my dad wasn't a very good talker. Like he wasn't a very good communicator. You know, there's a long, it was, it's, it's hilarious. There's like, there's the Duns and the Kennys in my family and the Kennys are real sort of huggers and kissers and, and, uh, affectionate. And then there was the Duns who were like completely sort of not, not able to do that. So he wasn't very good at sort of telling people how he felt about, you'd hear from your mother, oh, your dad's really proud of you. Your dad's, mm. your dad loves that you're doing this. And he's really excited about you doing this. Like I used to play piano years ago and, uh, different musical instruments and my mother would come in and say oh your dad loves hearing your dad play that would you go on but he he was one of these one of these guys that you sort of spent time with we didn't really talk a whole lot but you'd spend time he had a boat and we used to spend all the summers out on the boat he'd do fishing charges and diving and scuba diving when we were kids and uh we were sort of abandoned we were abandoned on <laughs> we were abandoned on the side of the side of the shore while they used to go off with all the scuba diving kids <laughs> like wandering the sounds fun <laughs> yeah it was great fun yeah, they'd go to the pub on a sunday and we'd be sort of wandering around with 20 20 kids but uh he had the boat and like i, I do, used to be out with them in the evening times working in the winters and sanding down and stuff but you'd just be with them yeah you'd just be hanging around with them you wouldn't necessarily be talking about anything specifically and he wasn't really that good at that sort of stuff but he did care he was a good dad you know so mm. he, re- he really did look after us you know but probably didn't communicate that well but that was in his in his yeah. upbringing which one are you you're done or? i'm a bit of everything actually i'm a bit of a mix of everything yeah yeah i'd be real sort of uh like huggy and affectionate with the kids and 
kissy and I'd, I'd have no problem sort of chatting to them about all sorts of stuff like you know it's funny in my house I would have I would have done the talk with a lot of the kids about stuff mm. well just background now I'm social work uh, I worked in social care and social work for most of my life now so it's natural to so you. that sort of stuff would be sort of natural you know but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't shy away though from those sort of conversations at all but uh, but you know I try to try to you try to just be able to talk and have those conversations and have the kids to be able to come and talk to you about stuff, you know. Um, but you're like, you have to learn, like my my mom and dad, like they they did their best, but they did make mistakes as well. They weren't perfect, but nobody is perfect. Oh, like you only, we all make mistakes yeah. when we're rearing children, you know, and we're trying to actually keep the house together and like me running around this evening trying to power outage, trying to mine. Yeah. Every day is Six just putting out fires. Trying to just run around to get down here because the power went and I yeah. no gas at the same time, just all at the one time, you know. But that's what that, that's that's what they were like. They were just trying to trying to make ends meet, trying to work, trying to keep the keep the food on the table and actually build a future for themselves and the kids, mm. you know. And they had only literally moved into the new house. They'd only built this new house and were planning all these things. They were going to go away and do things, and then he died. So that's terrible. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, my mother, like my mother, my mother. Uh, she's like a, I, she's an amazing woman. Like she's the role model for anyone. But she, she, she struggled for a couple of years. But then sort of said to herself, you know, and I'm just gonna get up and get on with get on with and live my life. And she's done so. She's done so many things. Like she, she went and uh, she went and climbed Base Camp Everest. She swam with great white sharks. She I was not expecting the, that conversation yeah, to go there. That was yeah, not, she, I thought you were going to say, oh, she goes down to the local community. No, well, uh, no, no, she, she basically, she, in the aftermath of that, she went and did loads of different things. She went to Great Wall of China. She did uh, the Andes. and That's did, mental. Went to Great White shark swimming all have you done stuff. them things uh, no i haven't no but i haven't uh I, I would like to get in with sharks now i would like to that yeah but uh that'll be on my list now of things to do but well sharks is not on my list for yeah, anything yeah, yeah. <laughs> unless to eat them i wouldn't yeah. mind eating some i was in one of my earliest childhood childhood memories actually was my dad i was on i was on a boat in tenor you know when you go out on the whale tours uh in tenerife and place in the canaries and you see those whale watching hmm. tours so we were on one of these whale watching tours back when I was maybe around 11 and uh, I didn't know that my dad and my dad uh, had brought a bag of snorkeling gear with him and we were on one of these tours and he literally says right come on stick that on you come on we're jumping in the water so we jumped we jumped in with the whales and uh, he my mom didn't tell me that there was one right under the boat because she was afraid I wouldn't get in but we were literally this, this, my mom has a video of it somewhere I think I saw it there recently but the two of us were swimming around with whales Wait. yeah yeah yeah, and loads of baby whales. We were back humpback whales in the middle of, or whatever they were down there. That's deadly. And you video that? Yeah, yeah, video of somewhere and all VHS thing. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. Well, I was only around yeah ten or eleven, yeah, and swimming with whales and yeah. Oh, you've a lot. You're you're lucky so that you have a lot of really cool memories with your dad and stuff. Hmm. They kind of fade out. You have to really sort of think about it though. Like even like you know, twenty five years is a long time and you get busy, you get busy with life doing everything and you have to like we were only opening up to all these old photos there a while ago, which you you have now. Like, you know, yeah, mm. we still have them, but you don't have them now. I mean you no. have the you have the, the phone and you have to scroll back through the years. But uh yeah, there's all these old albums with the eighties hairdos and my dad, my man with the eighties hairdos and the afros and all. Had he an afro? Was yeah, he a cool dude? Afro, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was only came up in conversation that he was in uh he was a mate of Phil Linnett's. My auntie said he's hung around with Phil Linnett for a period of time because he grew up, he was in Crumlin and Phil yeah. Linnett lived around the corner. Uh, 
but he had yeah, there's a picture of him with the afro and the fur coat and everything from the that's deadly seventies. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, left school and you were doing the software engineering. And after your father died, you just didn't bother doing it, or did you just no? Give it up? I was I was kind of doing it, but I was doing a lot of nixers. Like I was always somebody. Like I always had I always had several jobs. I always had a couple of jobs. I I I was probably I burned used to burn through money like there's no tomorrow, and uh, used to be an awful man for spending money. So drinking had, it. Well, drinking it or spending it or doing things or buying stuff. So I had to be, I had to be able to make money because I couldn't afford my own lifestyle and I wasn't getting from anywhere else. So I had to go out and try and make it. So I always had probably around two jobs or um, even in sort of full-time work, I was always the one who was coming home for an hour and then going back out again for another job and finishing up at nine o'clock at night. It's like so. that Conor McGregor quote. Mm. He had an unhealthy obsession with spending money, but you also have an unhealthy obsession with making it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've no time for him though. Like I, I kind of, I've no time for that that guy in particular, particularly as a guy growing up in Tala now because it was, I just think he just glamorizes scumbag. You know, there was do you know him? That, no, I don't. But I know people who are like him and who sort of aspired to be like him. And uh, if you look at if you look out there at the moment with people like someone like Katie Taylor, who's represented their country, who's a, an absolute icon and a, a role model for our children and our daughters and our sons to go out and aspire to. And this guy's fucking hoarding at buses and going around. That's, that's what comeback, media you know? is like now. The the yeah. drama sells. Yeah, yeah. No, the drama is sexy. People find the the they want to hate him. You know, the, yeah. the more nastiness there is, that's what people want to look at. Yeah, but I think he glamorized. He could have done a whole lot more in terms of for you to as a, as a role model for young people, particularly in talent, Cronland and all. And people are aspiring to like there, there was a massive uptake in like I do martial arts, but there's a, there's a massive uptake in in MMA and sports and all those young people looking to him for mm. for guidance and for as a role model. And he could have behaved himself better in public, you know, but. um yeah, so yeah, an unhealthy obsession with trying to make money and to keep my lifestyle going at the time as a kid. But you're having a few quid, like we had a, we had this, uh, we were on, me and my friend Dave, we think we were 16 and we were the only two lads who had a proper job during the summer. We worked in a place called Move. Is Kettletop get Dave now? Yeah, Kettletop, right. Kettletop Dave, yeah. But he had a, he had a, the two of us got a job in this place called Movex Packaging Services. It was in, just down the road from where I lived in Tala. And, uh, we stuck we stuck labels on packets of bleach for eight hours a day for three months solid and made around 80, 100 pounds a week at the time. And it was absolute brain deadening stuff. But we were the only kids at 16, 17 who could actually afford to go for a pint um, back then. Well, be able to do anything, but you had a few quid. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So I always had, I always had work. And when I left school, uh, I was in college. I had a couple of the things I was doing, started to do Nixers, doing website design for people. I was building websites for them. And, and did you learn that skill in college doing the software? I used, to, I used to learn, I just taught myself how to do it. Uh, I was, I wasn't really paying attention in college, to be honest. And, and I was kind of pissing around on the side doing things like that. And it was funny, there was a guy, uh, looking back, he was probably, a bit of a visionary now, but um, there was a guy that it was this this Indian man had approached some people in the school to say that he wanted to create, he wanted to open up an IT company and he wanted to get some young whiz kids on computers who could do websites and do online stuff. This was back in 2000 and 2000 or 1999. And uh, he was, I ended up, I went to meet this fella and he said he wanted to set up a company and he had three or four investors who wanted to open up a website development business. Mm. So I said, yeah, happy days, I'll go do that. But I'm first of all, I'm going to Boston traveling. I booked it. I'm going away with the, with the girlfriend at the time. Uh, I'm 
I'm not doing this until I come back. So fucked off to Boston for three months and lived there for a while and uh, had had a job lined up as a I, I had a had a job in a copy and print company over there in Boston. In Boston, worked for a couple of months. Uh, eventually got some consulting doing website stuff for for this cigar company that uh, I met loads of people from the Boston Red Sox and everybody used to go on the they'd be coming into the cigar shop and I'd be in the back mm. doing that for a couple of weeks. Um, but it was mad crack. But uh, came back after the three months after doing that and uh yeah uh, got a got a job or basically leading up a, a, a with the indian a company guy. with the indian fellow well he, he financed it and i was the manager director of it at the time when i was around 20 and uh basically led out a team of around seven developers to build websites for people and we got pretty we got like we got some pretty big contracts in the in the early stage we got some was a crowd at land pharmaceuticals which were the biggest company in ireland at the time at the time we got there we got the Got a contract for doing their content management system, back end managing all of their sort of data. Uh, Four Star Pizza, Black Tie, all these different companies we did their websites for. But there was a dot com boom and bust back then, and we basically just went to the wall. You so went bust. Went bust, yeah. So I was, uh, yeah, I was a 21 year old. And were you getting good money when you were there? I was getting, I was probably, I can't remember, I can't actually remember. Uh, well, I got enough to be able to get a car. I had a, like, I had this really horrible prom- promo car. It was a <laughs> two liter diesel Volkswagen Polo with spots on the side. But it was a rocket because it was a two liter diesel in a Was Polo. that your first car? No, no. My mother, my mother had a, well, it was my first car that I didn't get. My mom had a car, this sort of a three spoke alloy Volkswagen Polo that she gave. To, it was her car, but she let all of us drive it, learn to drive on that. And that was the first car I actually got. Um, through a company or anything, I didn't own it, but uh, yeah, I did that for did that for probably a year until it went bang, went went its up, and uh, I couldn't get a job. I I ended up I was, uh, I was a I was a an opinionated twenty one year old managing director of a business and going for interviews. People didn't believe it because you were just you were just a, a kid. You're just a kid. They didn't believe that you were doing this and. Uh, I spent six months. I couldn't get a job anywhere, and I didn't even doing interviews like all the time. And yeah, I was doing interviews, and I, I, I didn't, I didn't sign on because I didn't really believe in it stupidly at the time. Which I probably looking back, I should have done it because I paid enough tax in my life now, and you pay enough tax work, and you should have been able to do it. But I got a, I did this for, I did, I, I was unemployed for around six months, and then eventually got a job. And uh, they were saying I was getting a car and I was getting everything. I was getting a car, I was getting a desk, I was getting a phone. I was in the job around four or five days and no car, no phone, no laptop, no nothing. I was just sitting in a wall in the middle of Dublin, looking at a wall, making phone calls out of the, or out of the golden pages. And your man, Cold calling. Cold calling. And I, and I was going, like, where's these? And then they, they brought me into a room. They started attacking me and saying that we don't believe you. We've checked out about you. You're not what you say you are. And... Uh, you never did any of that. And it was like just nonsense. I, I had done it, you know, and they just let me go. So I just picked myself up again, went out, got a job. Were you good? I, wa- no, I wasn't good at that time. I was sort of, it was the first time I was ever unemployed for a long period of time. And then like I hadn't, I didn't have a job. I've always had a job, but I didn't have a qualification either at that time either because I had just sort of flunked out of the IT stuff. I just wasn't able to keep up with it because of what happened. And then I, uh, Got the, I I got another job then from this this crowd. It was an uh, I remember the name of the company. I remember the, I remember the name of the guy. It was a guy Jerry from this Net Nation IT recruitment guy. And I worked there for two weeks, 
and he pulled me in at the end of two weeks and he says this job isn't for you he said uh you're not meant to you're meant to work for yourself how could he tell that he just said it to me and i <coughs> remember i remember ringing uh uh jade at the time and i was bawling my eyes out on the steps of pier street going i'm after losing my job again i don't know what i'm gonna do and uh looking back and I didn't really know what I was going to do. I thought that was it. How the hell, where how am I going to get, um, get myself sorted. It's this, this sort of age. Yeah. And, uh, basically, um, a friend of mine had actually ra- rang me up. Uh, he said, Jesus, what are you doing? Ed? Why don't you come back to work? So he had, he had, um, he, he, he I worked with him for years in the HSE in the, in the part-time stuff years mm. ago. And uh, it was kind of funny because my mom and dad always thought that was sort of a waste of time when you're going to interact together. You can't be hanging around with people learning disabilities for years and doing this sort of stuff because it's just it was, it was hanging around with sort of trainee nurses back when I was around yeah. 16 or 17. You could hang with worse. Crack. You could hang with worse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always laugh. People ask me, oh, why did you go into learning disability services in the first place? It was like, well, you used to go down here. You'd be hanging around with all of these sort of trainee nurses and doctors and they'd, they were kind of the caring type. They'd feel sorry for you. If you're single for too long, you go, oh, come here, Ed, come on. Jesus, Jesus Christ. I don't like you, right? <laughs> I'm just like just honestly just care about you and want to to see you off but they uh, uh it was funny but there's a guy that i used to i i know and i did all the part-time work when he says look sure you might as well just come back and do this for a while so i went back doing that um i went back doing that and i ended up on just bizarrely i ended up i was really good at it so even back from the days that when i worked with uh people people in the in the voluntary service i didn't we, we, these people are our friends we didn't we didn't treat them any different and it was the, probably the secret to it like if somebody came up you'd you weren't treating them like a patient no you'd slag, you them. you'd slag them you cared them you're a mate you slag them off like and, uh, the, I, and even that i see people sometimes the way they treat people who are have special needs or the physical disability they treat them as if they're they they need to be treated with cotton gloves cotton mm. gloves and sort of tiptoed around but the reality is these people are just normal people like anyone else they yeah. want to be slagged they want to be they, they crave normal they interaction. Crave normality they just want to be treated normally they want to be told to feck off they want to be told to shut the fuck up and just get on with it like sometimes mm. uh they don't want to be just treated any different than anybody else so and that was my strength with it and i i, I got i got work i got working with this team of uh people who had every other service rejected them so they ended up they either had sort of forensic issues or offending some sort of a offending behavior or what does of, that mean uh they were either sort of caught up in criminality or sort of uh nuisance type behavior or they'd um like i uh one guy sort of being sexually inappropriate in public uh and guys in their teens 16 17 who like some of them had very very difficult backgrounds so like really difficult backgrounds no father figures no 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 real solid home and they had a learning disability as well but they didn't quite fit in they didn't have a they they had very mild intellectual disabilities or they had uh, autism or something that wasn't very clear mm. and when the mainstream disability service wouldn't take them because they didn't have downs or they didn't look they didn't they weren't severe enough to require a nor the, their remit of service so i ended up setting up this team of people in the north or uh, in uh, an area of dublin who did uh there was a social worker at the time who sort of got me in to mm. do this but i ended up uh, working on a couple of cases uh that was outside of normal services where we just worked as one-to-one people with people with severe difficulties so you'd arrive at their house and you'd just go like well what's going on dave what's what's good like what's what's happening with you what do you want to do like oh i'm unhappy i have no job i have no friends i have no girlfriend i and uh, so you'd make a list of all the stuff. And you say, "Well, look, I can't get you a girlfriend, but I can get you, I can bring you out to a disco." 
we can get, yeah. we can bring you to we can get you a job we can sort of work on your education we do all these sort of things so that's what we did we de- de- delivered so these it was of, just individual tailored service yeah, yeah. to people that were kind of in limbo yeah yeah it was like round, square pegs round holes sort of stuff that people were sort of being sort of pushed into services and then completely rejecting and then they were falling down or they were offending or doing something really bad and then they'd get kicked out and then they'd be left and then we we start to put together these services for people who fit that sort of profile and I was doing that for around two years. Uh, I was working in disability services, and and uh, um, actually, I'm missing I'm missing a year or two. I worked for a mainstream disability service. Were you qualified to do that? This thing? No, but I had been doing it since I was fifteen. So I had been doing the actual work since I was fifteen. At that point, I was around uh, twenty one or twenty two. Um, I was doing it for years, and I was just really good at it. And you guys, loved it. Yeah, I loved it. And the guys who were deemed as like major problems are some of the most difficult people. Uh, behaviorally in the country just turned into pussycats when I was with them because they just weren't being listened to they weren't uh, they weren't being listened talked to, to normally talked to normally and being treated respect mutual respect and now they, they, it wasn't always fairy tale like these guys had serious issues some of them and um, they were scared I, I've been chased around a few times at the pool queue and stuff like assaulted and been in all sorts of situations yeah but hence that was part the, of the martial job. arts like no no yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, I never did. I didn't do the martial arts because of that now, but uh, it was, uh, but uh, yeah, it was just, it was just people would have bad days and people would do things, you know, and you would get assaulted, you know, this part of social care, still to this day, people get assaulted and they went to work, you know, people, uh, uh, they, they can't, it's not every day, but it, but it can happen, you know. So at 22, you're, you're doing this, you realize that I like this job. Yeah, I like it and I think I'll go back. So I went back to, uh, it was funny. It was, I I, th- I went back to college and I remember it was funny, my uh, my missus at the time was kind of uh, with all the different to and fro. And I remember she said to me later, she said, Jesus Christ, I wonder will he ever get his act together? He's doing all of these sort of fucking half, he's doing all of these and was Jade various working? jobs. Yeah, she was a teacher. Yeah, she was a teacher in Kulak. Yeah. So, Thinking, oh, I got a fucking waste. Yeah, <laughs> what am I ever getting into myself into here? I've got an absolute waster. Yeah, he's just going from job to job and working in this learning disability stuff. Where is he going to, when's he going to get a real job? Because it wasn't really that well paid. You know, the two jobs, I had a job in uh, in a disability service when I was 20, but I had the other one, the the, the, the social thing, the, mm. the the team stuff was in the evening times and weekends. So you'd be coming in, you'd be coming in from work, from uh, working in Ballymun and get home an hour and you'd be getting straight in the bus into Dublin again to go do another job somewhere else, taking these lads playing snooker or to And was that more so to pay the bills? It was to pay the bills, but yeah, it's to pay the bills and to just... Uh, like just, I always, I never had an, like if you wanted to go away on holidays around, there was never enough to be able to actually pay. We, we all moved out. We didn't live at home then. I moved out when I was around 22. So we'd rent to pay and we had bills to pay back then. And uh, if you wanted to go away on holidays or do anything, you had to have an extra job because it wasn't enough. So you're under pressure. I was under pressure all the time back then. So, so I got, I, the, the job, the part-time job eventually became a full-time job because the, the, the evening job became a bigger demand there was a lot more of these young fellas and young girls mostly young fellas who had severe difficulties who needed sort of tailored supports and he ended up by uh one of the guys i arrived at uh one of the guys was around six foot five he was hilarious uh i was mad about him now, but massive guy six foot five uh probably 20 stone um, just imagine you opening the door to me him yeah no i opened the door to him one day i was working with him for a long time and he um 
like a lot of the guys, like they were under massive amounts of pressure from their families and their mothers, particularly because they'd be these guys just didn't know what to be doing with themselves in the morning and during the day. They didn't have any sort of get up and go and ambition to get out and do something. So the mothers would be putting pressure on them, going, "You ever get up out of bed? And would you get up and do this?" And eventually, they'd hit the mother a box or something. They 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 flip and mm. uh, the family dynamic would completely fall apart, and they'd have to they the family wouldn't be able to care for them anymore. That was a lot of it. Like the the, the individual or, or the the boy or the girl that eventually wouldn't be able to manage a home, wouldn't be able to uh, live a home, and then they had to they go into care. But one time I arrived at this this guy Christie's house, and uh, he was covered in blood, the door naked at the door. I came to the door naked, a big lump of fella naked, covered in blood. Um, sister and the mother was hiding in the bedroom upstairs, and the son was or the daughter was hiding under piano in the hall, and um, I just basically says I just start laughing at him. I just start laughing at him. Says you put your fucking trousers on, you big idiot. You're standing out in the middle of the street, and he just start laughing, and uh, we got him, got him dressed, and got him out, and got him, got him sorted. But he eventually got basically he got committed then on the back of that into eaters in Port Ran. Where did blood come from, Ed? He was after cutting his ear or doing something. Uh, but he did. He wasn't after hurting anybody. He was after hurting himself. He had cut a ear on all whatever. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, he ended up in in locked up basically and in, in a psychiatric institution. Now, if you were in any way high functioning or if you were a sort of very mild learning disability, there was nowhere for you to go. There was no services. So if you had to go into care, you were basically put in an institution and you were. There's no up. middle ground. There's no middle ground at all. So. I remember going out to visit him. Uh, I, had, I went out to try visit him around two or three weeks later, and they, they said, um, I said, oh, is Chrissy there? And he says, uh, yeah, yeah, he's here. Yeah, come on, we'll come, come in with him. We come into his bedroom. And I went, no, hold on, no, no, I'm not going into his bedroom. And he went, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. So she pulled me into the, the psychiatric nurse. pulled me into the bedroom, and he was obviously he was he was he was busy, right? And uh, he <laughs> he was busy, and she just kind of said, "God, go on, come on, your friend's here to visit you." Just whatever, and I'm just going, "Oh, she's could you could you just knocked, you know, you could have knocked, and you leave the poor young lad alone, like he's only a teenager, no privacy, in no there. privacy whatsoever." And he was medicated up to the eyeballs, and he was sedated. And the next time I visited him, he was in a kind of a bull ring, walking around in circles, and uh, massively sedated. That bad that bad and I just said I and just, he wasn't even he shouldn't have been there no he shouldn't have been there and that was when I had enough because I'd worked with loads of different guys like this and there was no real future for them in services so the guy that uh, there was a guy that I was working with at the time the social worker I was kind of saying Look, we have to do something about this we have to go and change this and like these guys, there's like people should be able to the problem with the whole sector at the time learning disabilities was that if you had downs you went here if you had a mild disability you went here and if you lived in a particular area, that's where you went regardless. You didn't have any choice. And if the service was crap or it was inefficient, you just went anyway because that's all that was on offer to you. And still to this day, there's a lot of problems around sort of services for people with disabilities. Uh, even they've become drastically deinstitutionalized now. But at the time, that's what uh, that's what people were put into. But he he basically, yeah, he, he got locked up there and he never came. I don't know if he, he's put, he could be out. It's a long time ago now, but uh, but I I was want to do something about it so i blagged uh my father-in-law had a had a bed and breakfast they were building and uh i said i'll rent i'll rent it off him for uh, six months the, uh, the whole bed and breakfast the whole bed and breakfast i said i rent off the bed i rent him the I rent the bed and breakfast and i got the social worker to agree to come on come in with me and i basically set up a respite service for for guys with the same issues so I used to take in residential people so who did you have to ask to 
could we house these here? Yeah, I went into I went into the HSE and I know we originally started with families. Uh, I went to families for respite. So if somebody needed respite, so if they had a kid like this who had issues yeah. at home, we had brochures that went out to families. Bizarrely, I found the brochure that I originally printed up on. Wait, do you have yeah, that? the original one that I, I found. It was a little 3D. I, I, I did it myself because I did the website myself. I did the... I did the pamphlets myself and everything. I did them on a little sort of publisher file, a three page little thing. I found it just was in a drawer. But uh, I I had this, I, I basically, we just took them into a bed and I did, I did all the staffing myself. So I did all the residential staffing myself for six months. So I used to do five day shifts. So I used to, well, there were 24 hours a day. Well, you, you, you slept, you slept in the, in the, in the B&B with them. You just had to them. be there with them in had case they be there with them, yeah. So you did sort of 16 hours plus sleep and five days in a row and then went home basically to sleep then and then repeated. So I did that for around six months. Uh, was hardly at home the whole time doing it. I was exhausted and used to, I used to take in a couple of kids, but you got enough then to be able to take on one person. So I took on, uh, I started full time in two thousand and four, two thousand and five. We got our first contract from the state then, which was a young autistic guy who had, was very violent. It wasn't he was violent. He's he's a daughter of a kid, but he he didn't realize his own strength. Yeah, no, no. He he used to sort of walk around town where he was from with his with uh, uh and he used to get picked on because he looked a bit different or he was autistic. But he it was an easy mark. Like if he said mm. to somebody. He'd shout at, or if they said something to him, he'd shout back or he'd threaten them. And then he'd get beaten up and then he'd go home. But he'd, his, he'd go home and he'd try to get an exact revenge. He'd go home and get a knife. He'd go home and get a, a hurley or a knife or a blade and go out. And he'd be on the street wandering around with a knife trying to find these guys to get back at them what he was mm. after doing. So um, so I got, he, he, I was charged, I got a contract to look after him. Um, and then I was able to take on a staff member then, an additional staff member, and then another one. And then we got another contract and another contract. So we had... Uh, B&B must have been fairly full yeah, at that stage. Yeah, it's filled up at around four then eventually. And uh, we had to look at another one. So we ended up, we got another one out in Monastraven. B&B? Yeah, I was able to take on more staff. Then I was able to hire a psychiatrist then. I've got a contract psychiatrist to come in to do sort of some work with us because we couldn't get anybody to do it. But all the time, everybody was was really difficult decision because you were basically competing against charities like we were we were a private company so and and i i was adamant i didn't want it to be a charity because like mcdonald like i this and i still to this day i believe in it like you know people if you go into if you go into a into mcdonald's and say like this is shit this is shit burger people stop buying it and go somewhere else or mm. they can complain about it and you there's a process but it has to get better has, or it goes out of business yeah it has to get better or it goes out of business with the charitable sector in ireland it doesn't work like that at all like you know if you're lucky to be getting it you're you're seen one you're seen as an object of charity uh just because you have a learning disability you're not a health consumer you're an object of charity and two you can't complain or enact or move your money so if you are really really unhappy about the service that you're getting in your locality with your ot your psychologist or whatever you're caught in that service indefinitely and you're nearly penalized if you complain and if you complain about it or you want to move out of it uh you've you're left you can't go somewhere else mm. so i set up the i was adamant that when i was setting up the organization back years ago that it would be that sort of model that people could uh could um, get the best service get the best service possible mm. and if they weren't happy could move or could take their take their model elsewhere so there's this concept called service brokerage where you could basically uh, service brokerage service brokers were ones that could go out and shop for the best service for you but basically we what we did was you just put together services for a person so if they came in and they were autistic and they needed purpose built or they need a purpose so you'd interview the the 
the person yeah, and see what f- they need. Yeah, we do a full needs assessment. Mm. We go back to the health service and say, well, do they need that? They need X amount of uh, uh, psychological intervention. They need psychiatry. They need this. We But we'd put everything together and then we'd refuse to take them unless they agreed to, to, to what we were proposing. And so they just kind of, because they were so, because the, the behaviors were so extreme, um, they used to agree to it, you know, so. So you were nearly specializing in the most extreme cases. Yeah, we did. Yeah. So we, we actually, we did, we ended up with the, being the challenge behavior service in the country for anyone who was, uh, who, who had complex behavioral issues. So. And once there with you, was that all your responsibility? Uh, yeah, it was. It was all my responsibility. Yeah, it was like we. I. I literally. It's. It was. It was it's funny because I. I you must have been only a young lad still. At that I was time. only twenty four. I actually went. I went back to college. I think when I was twenty two to do a degree in social care, and uh, I only qualified. I qualified when I was around twenty six through the Open Training College in Dublin. There was a specialist degree in disability studies, and by that time, I had so many staff working for me that they didn't. No one really gave a shit what my qualifications were at that point. They only cared what the other people's qualifications were. How, how did you balance the the care and and the business? The business side was difficult because like like i knew what to do i knew how to do it but trying to get other people to do that was an absolute nightmare you know so uh like i at the, in the early stages i did all the hr i did all the accounts i did all the bookkeeping i did all the work i did all the management so, so no I, sleeping for it no, so i started i started off all all the while like i was a young guy i was getting married i got married at 20 26 we had 26 we had kids around 27 so to my wife jade we'd we all through that like we were rearing a family and we were trying to and do was all it that financially too. going well or was it no no it wasn't it was it, we, i only started to make money maybe after around god it was around five years or so before we started to actually make any money out of it um do you ever want to give up i did uh, no no I, I never did i was so busy all the time that i never really came up for air you know it was funny because i <laughs> People develop these sort of opinions of you just because you're the boss or the, you look outwardly successful. So mm. I remember like we were in awful amounts of trouble from people who were talking about unionization and that uh, work with you worked for me. Yeah. And there was one guy who I had worked with for how years. many people had you at this I'd probably around 50 or so. I'd say 60 Jeez, or it got so. big quick. Yeah. 50 or 60 at that point. But I, I remember there was, there was a guy complaining and I knew the guys because I used to work with him. I, I worked with him in the service years ago for years and years and years. He's one of my first hires. And he came into a meeting and he was giving out and saying, oh, yeah, but no one's listening to us. And we want this and we want this. And and, and, and th- those people at the top. And he was but he was saying this to me. And I'm like, oh, John, John, this it's, it's fucking me. Like, it's what are you talking about? <laughs> and he went, oh, oh yeah, yeah. It's it. But he said, what are you talking about? He just fucking come in and call me. What? Why are you doing this? He, he was aggravating other people into sort of yeah. doing whatever he wanted to do. And. Uh, without actually coming and talking to me first and then Ren realized that it was actually me he just stopped and then just said oh yeah I suppose we could just ring him to have a chat to you you know because I was very I was I was a I was a real hands-on relaxed type of guy I wasn't really I wasn't a good operator I was a good more of a leader than a than a than a, than a manager um, and wasn't really good at managing the sort of complexities of so how many people. houses were you in at that stage I'm not sure but back when I was uh, like I like we ended up like it's, it's it all sort of fuzzes into one like but rolling forward back to around i exited around three I, I finished up around three years ago four years ago and at that point we did 60 and one and a half thousand people so what yeah so i ended up around yeah yeah one and a half thousand people and you were managing that on your own 
No, I wasn't. When I got to around 100, I started to lose control, like lose control of it. So I, I, I just couldn't get people to do what you want to do. Wait, there was so many funny things. Like one, we were, the care side of it was really, really complex because we were looking after people with severe issues. So people with uh, frontal lobe damage, with learning disabilities, with autism, but also with massive behavioral component of some kind. So there was either violence, aggression, inappropriate sexualized behaviors. There was all sorts of really complex stuff for, and, or self-harm or eating disorder orders um, all sorts of really sort of uh, really complex stuff and then you have to try manage all of this team and all the clinical people to actually manage those cases at the same time but I remember this is a funny thing we had this really good we had this really funny case here well it wasn't that, that funny but it was sad but we had the, this 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 guy he was very well able he was a uh, he was a waiter in a restaurant at one point, but he developed this uh, brain uh, uh, brain injury called Korsakoff syndrome, which was basically alcohol induced brain damage. Uh, and he ended up somehow in a nursing home because his family had all abandoned him. And he was um, he was, but he was a very handsome guy, really good looking in his forties, uh, long hair, tan skin, but just basically had significant brain damage and short term memory loss. But he got uh, used to hop out the windows of the nursing homes all the time and cause massive issues in the <laughs> nursing homes. So we eventually, we set up this really complex, we set up this, he, he had some sort of level of independence, but he had, he he had care, underlying care. And he used to just row with people all of the time, but he had massive health issues because this is, he'd, he'd forget to eat. He'd forget to uh, take medication and he had circulation problems, all sorts of things. So he needed a really, really complex care structure, but also some freedom to be able to go and do what he wanted to do and mm. try not to fuel his alcoholism and have mm. uh, to die. But he ended up he disappeared. He disappeared one time, and it transpired one of the one of the the care workers that was employed was after falling in love with him. And your employees yeah yeah and basically <laughs> said oh i'm taking him home with me like i'm there's nothing wrong with him he's grand like you know and basically took him away with him so she was in her 40s and he was and so we were like wait this guy had disappeared he'd gone and the staff member had basically taken him and so we were but he was a consent he was a consenting adult he was like so it was a slash kidnapping slash, slash kidnapping, love story yeah slash love story <laughs> yeah but he was gone and we were going after all we was going this jesus christ what are we going to tell the hse because this guy's after being taken and gone but he, he he only lasted around four days before she kind of went, fuck, I'm, I'm, I can't handle him. I can't handle this, you know, and uh, he got but But when you were, when it was at that stage, obviously it's making money then, right? Mm. So financially it's doing well. But your head, was there a stage when you went, oh, I, I can't, my head is just fried or well i always like i i always said to myself i I wanted to get out by the time i was around 40 like 43 because my dad died at 40 i'm actually 40 43 now and it was a major i just didn't want to do that to my own kids i didn't want to put myself through was it that. all consuming uh yeah all consuming like you didn't people didn't people didn't realize like the amount of pressure and the amount of stress because you like it wasn't just the behaviors and the issues like we had we had stuff like we we were dealing with the most complex stuff pre newspaper stuff. Uh, our job was basically not to keep stuff out of the newspapers, but it was about to hit the press, and the HSE would at last ditch effort approach you to try deal with and to or to the Department of Justice or we were taking people um, uh, diversion programs, juvenile diversion programs to get them out and to get them stopped from being locked up or. But usually there was massive amounts of pressure and stress about these things. There were really high uh, pressure cases. But on top of that, the staff member, you also had all of these families to feed. Like there was like 100 staff at a particular point. You're trying to get them to all do the way, do things the way you wanted it done. 
And some people just do completely the opposite. Like they just wouldn't do as they were told or, or they couldn't or they didn't know how. And so like we, uh, the, the crux of it came when I, 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 my uncle came to work for me. He was running a maintenance service and he came to work for me. And we knew quicker uh, that uh, we knew we knew uh, more about dishwashers breaking down and washing machines and kit within the service than we did service breaking down or staff doing what they were supposed to be doing because of the maintenance systems the structures that we had in place mm. and we had no control like we were going in to tell the HSE well we're doing it this way and this way and this way but yet with the care plans and everything said they were but we couldn't actually get the staff to do it because just the transition the management structures weren't there so there was a guy that, that my uncle all the time he he said look Ed oh, look, I used to work at he used to work in Tesco's he had a massive number of people working under him thousands of people and he worked in this Six Sigma lean management structure. So he said, look, I'll come in and I'll help you. I'll get to help you get a control of what's going on. And uh, I'll, I'll sort of put structures and systems and I'll bow out. I'll help you with the policy procedures to get out and then I'll bow out and go on. But he never left, actually. He just came to work for me then as a operations director. And actually, he went on to be CEO of the organization then recently. So, But uh, we had all the people that were in the early stages, like there was a group with Danica and Shane and people who and worked they stayed, in the early stages. And and you left. I left that they were senior. So I always said that I was going to leave. So I always, uh, my ambition was to just get out and to. Did you find it hard to leave? Retire. I did, but I didn't, I didn't want to be. Res- I, it's funny when you're in something like that, I just wanted away from it. I didn't want to be. Even though it was something that you built yourself that actually does good. Hmm. Did, did you not think, God, this is my baby? It is, yeah, but it's still like when you're faced with the prospect of potentially dying of a heart attack when you're 43 and leaving your children traumatized by that sort of thing. Yeah, I'll do it. He was saying, you know what, I just can't do that to myself. And I was, I was all through that period. I was massively stressed. I had in and out of the, like at one point I thought I was having a heart attack when I was around in my mid thirties. And I was actually just saying, I just realized it was an anxiety. It was just, I was having anxiety attacks all the time because of the level of pressure. Because I had a family, I'd. I had a family, I had t- hundreds of staff, uh, I had uh, to, to deal with the caseload that we were working on and I just couldn't, I just couldn't hack it. And when I, when I realized what it was, that it was anxiety, I was able, I was grand then <laughs> because it was a bit of a control freak. I was fine with actually dealing with that once I knew what it Can was. Can you remember the day you left that you um, had, um, that's it, I'm done, I'm done now? I can, yeah, but I, I started a process back when I was uh I don't might in thirties to start preparing the business to 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 move be moved on. And uh I didn't leave immediately. So what I did was I I I, I didn't I what I did I did I took on a business partner, a guy bought bought the business off me, bought the majority of it off me, and then I sort of felt the 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 stress come off it then like i still owned a significant proportion of the business but it wasn't all on me then i had a big board of directors there was like at that point we had like like that we had five, one and a half thousand staff with the biggest clinical team in ireland like i was overseeing the business the biggest clinical and forensic team in ireland uh for the for people learning disabilities that's cool. 60 or 70 clinicians of speech and language uh forensics uh, psychiatry psychology neuropsychiatry and this thing that we were shit hot we were absolutely shit hot so if you had those massive issues in the public system with people having sort of neurological issues and say if you were getting seizures right mm. seizures can induce massive behavioral problems afterwards or before uh, and uh, there was a lot of kids who were who had this sort of stuff and they'd give massive challenging behaviors massively violent but it could have been a precursor to a seizure or a post but they in the public system they'd be they'd be waiting to see a neuropsychiatrist for like around 18 months in the meantime they'd be 
absolutely uh, their, 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 their own lives would be tortured and their family's lives would be tortured mm. but we were able to do that within two days we'd get in get somebody completely assessed scan, uh, send them for CTs get the get the get whatever team was needed immediately and actually deal with the problem immediately and as a result we were able to actually stabilize people really really quickly get them back to baseline get them back to independence and move them on so we ended up build, with building this massive service where we had high support secure high support stuff right the way down to independent living and we took somebody who was like really really dependent and in real difficult situation and then over a period of years months or years be able to actually move them until they were completely out and gone and moved on you're still very passionate about the whole thing though. yeah you know, i still i was very good at it i love doing it but uh i just didn't want to basically get to 43 and still be doing it you know what was the first thing you done to spoil yourself when you left um i didn't really i was lucky in that i had done loads of stupid things while i was in it so like during the during the the throughout the the whole um the building of the business i started to probably make money after in 10 years and then i had sort of things that i bought or i used to piss around with cars and like i um, what was the first thing you bought when you had a few pound what i bought uh i bought a 1967 cherry red mustang coupe from but that was with my ssaa money so i got because i didn't need I, like i got to the point i had the ssaa all of my brother and my sister we all we did the topped up the ssaa mm. to the max and got that uh well basically got to a point where i had a job i had a few quid so i didn't need the money to go back into anything of them so i just blew the whole lot of it on a car why not yeah yeah but then that like uh, like that was sort <clears> of a trigger like it was one of the triggers that actually dragged me down like i was not dragged me down the country but we were living in uh when I bought that, we were living in uh, living in a housing estate still up in Newbridge, and at the same time, that was when the recession hit, two thousand eight recession mm. hit, and uh, it just I just felt so bad. I just couldn't. There was four or five people on our road who had just lost their jobs, who everybody was parting at that time. And I just couldn't, I just felt so bad. About, you were feeling guilty. I was just feeling really guilty. About, for being successful. At the time, about being successful. So I was saying to Jade, oh, look, let's, let's try find a place we can build somewhere else. And in the middle of nowhere, where, you know. Don't you screen. dare call where I'm from. The middle, middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, to me, it was the middle of nowhere. I didn't even know Mendrath existed before I actually came down, came down here. It was hilarious. Like, if you ask me, because we were looking at a site around Kildare at the time years ago and, uh, we were looking at the site and it was right at the top of the boom. And some guy, I offered the fellow the money he wanted for the site as advertised. And he came back, no other bidders, and said 20 grand more. And I said, you know what? Feck you, I said. And I said, no. And uh, we went down to view. There was another site at the same time for the same price, but much bigger. It was around nine acres in, mm. in, the, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, <laughs> arrived down into the middle of this hayfield uh, with a river running through it and went, my God, this is, this is amazing. This place is amazing. Like we're a kilometer from the nearest, 600 meters from the nearest house. We're in a, a small, the, all the schools locally. There was like six kids in the primary school down the road. The quality of life looked absolutely amazing hmm. to a dub. Like uh, this was like paradise. So I then decided to move down, down there. And so I didn't, I could hide me coop mustang in the middle of a field and no one could see it <laughs> it's mad because you either you keep a low profile or i go nowhere because i went to the cannonball the first cannonball yeah. i went to and i remember the ford gt like the sexiest car ever and bob goes he's from around where you're from like yeah, yeah. 
couldn't be. Sure, I know everyone <laughs> around yeah, there. But it was funny because I met you the first time. I was like, fuck, is this, that's a local fella. I don't want him knowing me. Uh, <laughs> you know. But like, you know, I, 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 like I always did sort of keep my head down. I don't really, even in business, I always kept my head down because I didn't go on the media. I didn't talk. And like, like New was enormous. Like it's a big business. Like New employs more people than Microsoft in Ireland now. And no one ever knows about it. And it's probably because of the, the actual, the, the type of work that it does. That How'd you pick the name? Uh, just at the time, new. I love Irish names for businesses. Like I've, I'm involved in several startups, and they all have Irish names. You know, we had. Um, I just like that. I'm not even a. I'm not even an Irish speaker. Like I know a little bit of Irish, but I just like the. I like. I like like Irish brands. I like the themes. How long were you left? Newer, did you said? Oh, I think I I'd like to start more businesses or invest in more businesses. Well, but I, were you I, always doing that? I said I was never going to go in and do something again that required that much pressure or stress. So I wasn't going to do that to myself. Um, so I was doing sort of passive stuff. Um, so I got involved. Like I only when I when I sort of got the investor, I I I we we grew it drastically in a few years until it was sold, uh, sold, and then I I left at that point. It was completely gone. And they uh, they put a new management team in place and I trailed off. But I was probably only out the door a day. And I kind of said to myself that I wanted to, I wanted to do something new. So so you didn't, you, you still wanted to do something. You wanted to. I didn't want to actually get involved in anything that was going to require, going to bring me stress. So like I was, like I, I was heavily involved in philanthropic stuff for years and I wanted to really do more of that. So I run a foundation. Oh, when I made a few bob, I kind of wanted to sort of focus on sort of spending the spending a few quid on on things that I wanted to do, um, um, different things. I did some stuff in the local community, like I've I've got involved in here in this this building, but I did a lot of projects abroad, a lot of projects in Ireland on uh, philanthropic stuff that I wouldn't don't generally. T- I don't like. I kind of don't mix everything in baskets in business. I I'd keep his business over here. I'd keep my sort of social stuff over here. I'd keep my the car stuff and another bit or the, mm. the 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 philanthropic stuff elsewhere so i don't wouldn't jump up and down about what i do so but. yeah you keep it uh, under your hat yeah yeah it was really funny it was years ago when i was in the hsc i was uh, i was working with hsc i remember going in to talk to a guy about a contract and everything and he just gave out for the first 15 minutes about the last guy who was in who drove a nice car <laughs> He drove a drove America top of the range Mercedes to the meeting. And from then I always said, Jeez, never come to a meeting in a new car when you're meeting a civil servant. You used to get a lift lift out and dropped outside. You know. Just buy an old shit car. Yeah, yeah, yeah buy an old shit car for going to the meetings, you know. But um yeah, no, when I finished up I I like I was we, we, we had I had sort of involvement in a couple of different projects. It was a, a good friend of mine, another friend of mine, Dave. Uh he lives in Spain. Not Kettletop Dave. Not Kettletop Dave, no, Dave, um Spanish Dave. Well he's not really Spanish, so he's um he emigrated over to Spain around mm. seven or eight years ago and is living out there with his family now. But uh we run a business together from there in the States, um, selling tools on Amazon. Bizarrely. Yeah. How'd you get into that? Just that was his background. He was really, uh, he was re- that was his life's business. He was uh, always selling tools uh, nationally and internationally. He was an international sales director for a big brand and uh, wanted to go out and do something on his own. And he was exploring the idea of going to Dubai and Middle East and things and then went out into the US. And at the time, I was looking for stuff to invest in and to get involved in stuff. And my missus is very dubious now. She just doesn't buy it. She says, like, I think you just... 
want to go on holidays. I think you just invested in Dave's business so you could just hang out with each other. And I'm fucking, that's not true. That's not true at all. So, but um, yeah, so we do that together. We've been working together for around four or five years, building a business in the States. So, and that's a bit of fun. Um, that's not fun at all, I mean. And how many businesses do you sort of tinker with? Uh, I, I, I've restricted, I've only probably, I'm involved in a brewery, so I've uh, I've um, involved in the brewery Galway Bay and brew for the last like number of years uh, uh, with bars and restaurants, bars, restaurants and brewer and, and the main brewery out in Galway. So I've been doing that for a few years. We did a merger with, we merged Go, brew in Galway Bay back uh, a year and a half ago, just over a year ago. Um, so that's one that I chair. I do some voluntary stuff here. I chair the chair the local community enterprise thing. This here, this Bloom HQ building, I chair. Um, and then I've the tool business. But most most of the time, I it's all philanthropic stuff now. I'm mostly involved in different projects. So, so what's your typical day now? It could be anything. Like you know, I'm 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 after. I could. It's sometimes your brain be fried because you go on to like conversations you could be talking about 20 different types of different things in one day from a conversation about something in a brewery to a project out in africa or a project in a different country or a community project in dublin and 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 you could be on 20 different topics in one day so you'd be fried so i I thought i was going to completely exit out of social care but i was involved in uh i was involved in a advocacy project to try change direct provision so i was um I I I've, I've done projects like I, r- I run a fund basically, so I don't I don't believe in handing my kids all my money. So I want to invest in sort of social problems and social uh, projects all around the world, or just for doing good with my money rather than handing my kids a lump of money in retirement. Sorry, kids, you're not getting fucking anything. Ah, kids are going to be raging. Oh man, the fierce nice chaps. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I I went and. I was involved with this with this one project I was I was very passionate about. I, I think I think direct vision is is the next uh is the next scandal of our time. There's been children who were growing up uh, in caravans and hotels for their whole lives, ten years of age, and have missed out on opportunities for proper education, for inclusion, for seeing their families work, seeing their mom and dads cook a cook a dinner and they arrive in this country from other places seeking uh seeking sanctuary and are kept in limbo for ten years, like the Government should should have at the time either uh, deported them or allowed them to stay or or processed it quickly. So, um, the people have been living in hotels and dilapidated type arrangements and caravans, and um, there was never any social care operators in that sector. It was all hoteliers or people who were basically providing bedroom and board. So people had approached me a couple of years ago, Children's Rights Alliance and the Community Foundation of Ireland going like, why aren't you guys doing this? Why aren't NUA doing this sort of work? And I go, well, look, we don't provide beds. We provide social care. We provide wraparound services. We look after people. We provide care planning for people. We don't just provide beds and food. And that's what the government was basically looking for at the time. So I set about uh, doing a couple of different change advocacy programs. So we hired a a change advocate for getting equal rights for status for children under the ombudsman and i think uh, equal children's uh children's allowance and they were very successful at that they sort of just basically aggravated the government myself and another guy mike paid the salary of this girl for a couple of years to basically just aggravate to for change and she was really good at got got a load of changes for children uh, for migrant children and then we got the same crowd working on a bunch of uh, standards for disability standards for HICWA standards for centres to try bring up the standard. But one or two, when I had left, when I had left New uh, people were still saying, "Well, look, 
it's not changing, things aren't happening. Why don't you do it? And I just said, oh, fuck it, I do it. I, so I set up a set up a pilot program, what I, what I thought could look like. Everybody's complained about direct vision and everyone's saying it should shut, but nobody's actually coming out of the woodwork and actually going, well, this is what it should be like. And this is what you should do. So we set up a pilot project around uh, a number of homes sort of dispersed within communities spread out all over the place with a social care team in the middle who basically support people to integrate and to run a care plan with those people who are from Syria or from Afghanistan or from different countries that they're coming from. So we try to integrate them from the minute they arrive as opposed to just lumping them in a hotel room for a year. They become institutionalized at the end of the year. They're not work. They, 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 it's harder for them to integrate and harder for them to get a job if all they've done is sit in a hotel room for a year. So well, we, we build... Uh, or integrate people, support them through social care. When you're watching, because you're experienced at what you do, and when you're watching stuff unfold with the government and the HSE, and mm. you see these things, can you see mistakes happening and go, God, what are you doing? What is happening here? Yeah, like they've, like they're still, but look, <coughs> like, like it happens all the time. Like, and, and like people don't realize that people think, oh, government is going to change the government, things are going to change. But the reality is, it's the same civil service that's been there, it's the same people. Like your minister for health will change every once every four years or now every two years. But, but the people doing the services the people don't. doing the services don't. They're in there all the time. Like, you know, your your civil servants are there all the time. They're the people who are running the show. You know, your 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 politicians are temporary. You know, they come in and out. And uh, they're fighting the battle, those politicians as well, for change. But they won't change things that quick. So they do make mistakes. And like even around the whole sort of not-for-profit argument, for-profit argument in indirect provision services, it's wrong. Because basically what they're... It wasn't for profit or not for profit that created bad services in Ireland. It was the fact that they procured beds and room and board. They didn't procure services for people, whereas they actually put services out for tender out for for to actually care for people, human beings. They would have got high quality services and they would have got good value for money. So if Ed Dunn was made the boss over the HSE, what would the four changes that you'd make that would make it better? Oh, I just uh, I would I wouldn't even start to. I, I I couldn't even. You'd have to dismantle it. Basically, you'd have to dismantle the structures. That Is it are just a mess? It's just a mess. Like you know, and even even talking to some of the senior people years ago in the mental health services, they're all really caring and good people. Like you know, they're really they do care. But so the only key changes in the HSE ever happened over the last twenty years was the change in the sticker in the van on on the side of the vans of your <laughs> HA. The years that's all that changed. But. You know, I don't like, I don't, I never get caught, caught up in politics or never get involved. And I like doing, I like doing stuff and doing projects to change. And I'm hopeful that the project that I'm doing now is going to make a big difference. Now we're starting to get real traction. We had a load of, we, we looked after around 150 people in the last crisis recently. And now we're getting big traction governmentally. But I'm doing that. I'm doing it as it's a social enterprise now. I don't want to be doing, I'm not doing a not for profit. I'm not doing a for profit company again. I've committed to give away my shareholding to charity when I'm or the majority of my shareholding to, to, to charity when I'm done. Once I've achieved the model and shown people how to do it, that other people can copy it. I'm going to exit and do it, but I'm just doing it for doing it for the crack now. What's your most fun part of the week? Uh, Mike, uh, I. I've, I love being a dad. I love I love hanging out with my kids, uh, being with my family. Um, we're all sort of mates now. I have four children. Uh, I have two boys and two girls, two 16-year-olds. How uh, do you manage not to spoil them? Uh, I think you do spoil them. I think you do spoil them all the time, like just... Um, but you have to sort of keep them grounded and talk to them as people and remind them that there's other people out there that... Or, or have struggle and have problems and 
Um, like the kids don't probably, like you said, like as you say with your own, they don't give a shit. They live in the moment, mm. you know what I mean? You're just trying to guide them through their little mm. issues and happenings, whatever happens. But I don't have one key moment, favorite moment of the week, but like I just like spending time with my kids and having And a how crack. many kids have you? A four. So I've started, uh, yeah, we've t- my baby is 11. He's probably bigger than you now at this he stage. Bigger than me. He's a lump, yeah, yeah. He nearly broke my rib. Yeah, he's very, he's a very funny kid as well. He's, he's just a, I don't know where we got him from, but he's just a, he's just an absolute messer. So, um, he started talking really young as well. He was like around one and a half, and a neighbor came in the door and he says, "Well, Morgan, how are you?" And he says, "I'm grand yourself." <laughs> and uh, he was five, and he, uh, he said, "Oh, what do you want to, what do you want to do when you grow up, Morgan?" He says, uh, "Play hurling and never get married." <laughs> <laughs> I think he was only five. Yeah, and he came in there the other day. He says, "Oh, you don't look very happy. You two, you and your miss, you, you, you and you and mom, you don't look very happy. Maybe you should get a divorce." This is what you saying of two Christmases, <laughs> two Christmases, two birthdays. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he's funny. Yeah, and I've, I've, I've older boys, fourteen, Jack. So he's a real engineer, mechanical, interested in everything. So wants to be building, working his hands, building cars, doing projects, and. So we do very hands-on stuff at home. Like I wanted the kids to actually, they want to be pissing around the social media stuff, but a lot of them, I don't want them taking, just doing random stupid stuff and putting it on TikTok. So mm. we started messing around with the social media and YouTube and things years ago, just building cars or building a project where it actually had them doing something meaningful and learning a skill. So it kind of got out of control. Though, so we started doing You've built some epic projects. We started doing bigger and bigger projects, yeah. So we built a Ghostbusters car last year. That, that, that was epic. Yeah, we're in the middle of building an, an Isetta at the moment, which is a uh, an old like bubble car, but we're going to do an electric, electric conversion in it. So, um, yeah, so I started that social media shit messing years ago because uh, it just, I couldn't, uh, doing public service contract stuff, I just couldn't have a personal profile. Mm-hmm. So anytime we're going to car shows or messing around or doing things, we had to, had to alter ego. Yeah. What's Petra. your favorite car? Um, I think probably the 60s, uh, 67 Volkswagen bus because of the memories. I traveled all over the, all over, all over France and uh, France in the years ago. We took the family all over Europe in a, for five years in a row. And so it crashed it, rolled it off twice on French trips. Had to get it. You rolled that off twice? Somebody crashed into the back of us, crunched the thing, got to get transported back another time, burnt the engine out of a two liter petrol engine just exploded and left the missus and the kids on the side of the road and had to get them flown back and <laughs> left the car She's not happy she won't even get into it now it's like little little miss sunshine she doesn't now trust it no you have to be able to push it like you know, anyone who has one of them has to learn how they have to actually be able to jump start a car because they always break down how did you get into cars i don't know i just started with one and then we just started looking at uh i got a mini oh no i think i started with the mustang then just never sold it and then started building a custom bus then and then didn't sell that and I got a mini but then eventually got rid of that and just started collecting stuff you know I was talking to a lot of people over the years around sort of finance and investment especially if you start to make a few quid and they just didn't trust any of them like you know just didn't trust the like I remember working with a pension advisor with two or three staff years ago who sold six pensions to my team members and we we tried to unwind the pension around seven years later and uh unwind the pension seven years later and actually flip it into a new policy for the staff to get a better deal for them and it turned out all the fees had been actually paid in the first seven years and the guys had nothing they had all of the bank fees and the pension fund fees already taken out seven years in advance and there was nothing in the end of it for them 
So they had to, I think there was like 15,000 euros gone that they had put uh, these these guys and they'd worked hard with these staff. So we ended up, the company actually went in and we actually just replaced it for them and gave them a new pension scheme. But I just didn't trust them. And I figured if you had you an trust old, them now? No, I don't know. No, but if you, diff- if you had a, if you had a, if you had a, if you had a uh, a classic car, at least you could go out and see it. You could park it in the driveway. Tangible. It's a tangible asset, and you could go out. And if like I don't know anybody who's lost money over the last couple of years on buying classic cars, and it could be a bit of a dip coming, you know. But uh, they haven't. Nobody I know has lost any money on them. And your dream of being a pilot? Yeah, helicopter. yeah. No, I've learned how to become. A, I've learned I can fly a helicopter now. I can just. I can fly. I can. I can. I can not die <laughs> if I sneeze. That's about the height of it. Is it that? Hard drive a helicopter. Well, or you're, one. well you're used to uh, complex movements with your hands uh, at yourself and that machine of yours up in the. But I, I watched a, I watched a, a thing on YouTube mm. that if you've done a certain movement with a helicopter, it's unretrievable. Like if you just push forward or something. I, think they, I think they tell everybody else who fly helicopters not to watch that YouTube video. Maybe so. Yeah, don't watch that. I don't. I don't fucking know. They're not the type of YouTube videos that I'd be looking up. Today. Have you I'd ever be... had a scary moment? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was really funny. I was landing out. I was landing one time, and there was a guy. There was a fellow. It was kind of a nervous pilot, anyway. Like he wasn't instructor, but he was nervous pilot. Yeah, and he was, he was. Uh, all I, I was like beep 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 beep, and everything. And I, I thought I was in control of the helicopter, but he was holding it really tight, and I was pushing it, and he was pulling it. And I was pushing, he was pushing it, but I was pushing the. Turning the engine off basically, and uh, the, every all the the beeps are, and he turns, he turns around, let go of the fucking controls, let go of the controls. And I'm, okay, <laughs> but it was me. I was heading for the ground. I've watched too much air crash <laughs> yeah. investigation to yeah, yeah, yeah. think that that's cool. Yeah, but helicopters are like they're not like uh, they're like I don't think they're that dangerous compared to like getting into a car. Like just, there's a fifty point safety check every time you get into a helicopter, and you have to check every single thing first off before you actually take off. Whereas you get into a car, you just like turn it on and off you go in the middle of fog. And Where do you go on it? Just go anywhere. You just like it's like a hobby thing. You just pick up and go somewhere. Do you have uh, to tell like Do you have to tell people oh, I'm going to be flying through here at a certain? You time? do. You have to hit flight plans or depending on how far you're going, you have to submit flight plans. You're in constant contact with different radio stations all around Ireland. You'd be going through Shannon region. You'd be chatting, but lots of all, all these guys who are doing this are all hobbyists. They're all just want to fly. But I often wondered if you just say you wanted to fly from your house hmm. and you want to go to Dublin. How far in can you fly? You can't fly to any sort of control uh, security zones. You have to get permission. So if you can't fly around Baldonnell or you can't mess around in areas where there's planes landing, like there's a clearance, clear zones around Dublin Airport and Shannon Airport, you can't fly near. So you have to pick specific places to go to. But like that, it's just a hobby. You know, there's a friend of mine that does it. He's a, he's a, He's he's just late in life. He's a judge, and he spends his whole life as a barrister. And George says, "I've always wanted to fly. I always wanted to do it." And he's doing lessons now and having great crack at it. Mm. But I was in the back of the helicopter last a few weeks ago, and I'm thinking I was going to die because he was like doing the normal rate of descent. The advisable is around 500 feet per minute, and he's gone around 2,000 feet towards oh, the game. And then the the guy, the the flight instructor, is just gone. You might want to pull up there, Brian. You might <laughs> pull up there, Brian. I'm going to fuck him all up. That's shitey said. Yeah, but it's a bit of crack, you know. So I've got the kids up doing it a couple of times as well. So I think Jack probably wants to be a pilot. He's itching towards doing it. Uh, or an engineer anyway. So, But you learn so much about machines and the helicopter and flight dynamics yeah. and everything in that process that you can probably do it. After all the projects you've done, have you were you always good at mechanicing, or have you got better? I was always a Lego kid, you know. Like, a, like I even I'm not a I I don't do the sort of mechanical work on the engines myself. Not that I I probably could if I. It's another day. Put isn't my it? mind to it. It's another day. It's another it's day. Time, but there's also there's always like there's a maid, you know, Dave who's just a, a wizard at it, and he's just brilliant. And why would you try to? 
get good at something he can do mm. like he do for you you know these this this there's masters of their trade out there like you wouldn't touch paint on a car you wouldn't touch like why like why would you go at something that someone else could do a way better job at you know there was a guy up the road here patty who used to be like one of the main go-to guys in the whole country for carburetors okay yeah, and everybody knew him to go to to for to fix your carburetor if you're problem with guys all over the country but to tune car carburetors but like that that's the type of stuff you want when you're doing those with the cars you want somebody who's really really good at it you ready you for know. the hard questions? Yes. You don't have to answer them. <laughs> but everyone's going to think you're a loser if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start off with uh, a few of the simple ones. They aren't that simple, but they're simple enough. For a lad like you, no fucking bother. Here we go. Here we go. <clears throat> I wouldn't, I do sometimes think, oh, nobody wants to hear these questions. And then if I don't ask them, I get about 100 messages going, you didn't fucking ask the questions, <laughs> Cody. What's your most vivid childhood memory? Oh God! Um, I think I think there's there's a few. Oh Jesus! What was it? I remember dropping a block on my sister's finger when I was a kid. Yeah, that's one of them. Uh, that was an accident. I didn't do that deliberately. I don't know the way yeah, you said it. Yeah, but I used to dump. I used to dump the washing, the dirty washing, over the banisters down on top of their heads all the time. I remember <laughs> doing that. <laughs> Skid marks on the yeah. head. Uh, would you like yourself if you met yourself? Oh. I think I'd probably bore me or annoy me, yeah, in some way. No, probably. Why oh, do you think you're annoying? No, but I think, like, uh, I think I'd probably annoy myself. Yeah. If you had to ask one person a question and they had to answer truthfully, who and what would it be? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. That's a really hard one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Who brings you the most happiness in your life? Oh, my children, definitely. Yeah, my family. My Sorry children. about that, Jade. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Do you yeah. think things happen for a reason, <laughs> or do we find reasons after things happen? Uh, I don't think anything happens for a reason. I think just we all sort of plod through life, and things happen to us, and uh, we find a reason in them afterwards. Yeah. Do you believe in God? Nope. What do you think happens after you die? You turn into a big lump of goo, and you <laughs> rot down into the ground, and you become plants. There's actually there's a really good service that I read a bit recently that they actually give you back in a bag of compost. And they can like just put you on a tree. And I seen that. Go. Yeah, I love that's that. actually that's cool. Great. Actually, you turn into something rather mm. than sort of a place for people to go and. And I love trees. Like yeah. so, yeah, you imagine you can plant yeah, yourself yeah. as a tree, especially yeah. if it's soft wood, and I might get to cut you down someday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, could you stop working working forever and not do anything? No, no, never. I'm always doing something. Like I've always never stopped ever doing something. I always have a project on. You know, I always take on projects and take on campaigns and don't, don't stop, you know. And is that because you financially couldn't or because mentally you couldn't? No, I'm like just, uh, I'm just, uh, I, I just get it into my head that I have to do something and I do it. Like, you know, it's funny, we, I, we, we adopted a child, um, we adopted, one of our daughters that adopted, I spent, um, that was a sort of an arduous process, it took, it took, years upon years did you just decide you wanted to adopt someone or how did that no i was uh this is probably a very long story uh david for and your book is wide open there but i have time yeah but (laughs) but i i was i had i literally i sold my business um in the early stages and i i went to a fundraiser and i was uh there was guys out there sort of shaking books and trying to raise money for orphans out in moldova and uh i went to the fundraiser anyway and i had a few quid in my back pocket and i 
they were doing a campaign to try to raise money for 40. One of the things they were trying to raise money for was to, to fund 40 PAs uh, or personal assistance for children with uh, learning disabilities or disabilities in this orphanage. So I basically wrote the check for the 40 people. I went up and gave them the money first. But I went up and said, look, well, I said, I'm an expert in this sort of stuff. And I said, well, I want to go out and see how you're spending the money. And I want to go out and have a look and... I want to uh, check it up, check it up. But I want to make sure that what you're doing is uh, that I can help. I can be, I wasn't, I wasn't checking on it, but I wanted to help them mm. be more effective about how they spend the money. So I went out and I found that the service was what that they were offering with the money was, it wasn't exactly what I had asked them to do, but I kind of turned a blind eye to it. They had, I wanted them to sort of spread the money over a number of years and keep people in consistent jobs for a long period of time, but they hadn't, they had just, tr- they had thrown all 40 onto the floor all at one time and there was people sort of shaking rattles or rubbing brushing people's hair there was children with severe to profound learning disabilities people with just physical mild physical disabilities and uh, and but these people were sort of standing beside them and sort of combing their hair and doing things and i didn't think it was very good effective way of using uh using funds and there was better ways to be able to support people into better care situations so especially sort of like there's no reason in this day and age we don't there is no institutions in ireland because children are in foster care in ireland or they're in supported living arrangements and now there they were in institutions and then there they were in institutions and this irish charity was like pumping massive amounts of money into just sustaining that and making it better for them but not really moving anybody on so i said well look how about we run a project and i'll fund it where we 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 buy three care homes out there we we uh, train the social services out there to train all the carers how to be effective so- social care workers, uh, how to run a care plan for an individual. You basically started another new out there, Started another you? sort of uh, Moldovan type situation, but supported, supported a charity to do it. So mm. gave them the money and the forms and basically flew. Uh, so I, I, I flew out and I was absolutely sort of struck by what was going on. And I remember, like, I remember, like, there was this, we were in this sort of three-floor institution. We were sort of phoning in in the dead, and you're arriving in the dark. You're arriving out to this institution in the middle of nowhere. Um, real sort of Eastern Bloc stuff. And yeah, you're, it's cold, snow everywhere, and you're, you go out. And we were in the, in the, kept in the institution for around three days, and then flew back out. But the, the situation was horrible. I was nosy. I was wandering around and kids were sort of being fed porridge out of buckets and stuff. And oh, But there was one sort of cohort of kids, there was around 13 of them, who were a little bit more able-bodied and able. Uh, but some of the, most of them had physical disabilities. One or two of them had sort of facial dysmorphia, different things. And But they were sort of kept in one sort of area and it was sort of set up like a normal home. And... Um, Basically, I just I remember I remember the the CEO of the charity telling me that one particular girl, this little one, she gorgeous little thing, she's beautiful. She basically said, "Oh, just I don't know how that girl can sort of be near you or approach men like she's just just I've never seen her do that before, sitting on your lap and chatting to her, and she'd me hat on it is key peaked hat, <laughs> and uh, and she's told me that oh her her mother was violently beaten to death in front of her when she was a baby, and she's an aversion to men." And that, um, I don't know how she's that. And I remember going back to this, there was this little house at the side of the orphanage that we were kept in and we were back. And I remember there was, I, 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 I'm a strong guy now. I'm well able for uh, humanity and listening to people. But I cried myself to sleep that night. I cried thinking about that child. And I cemented my sort of support for the charity and really what I was going to do and help them and give them money. And, uh, so I started off on this project. I, I my first part of it, well, port, port, port of call was actually start to get a care home to try to acquire one first. 
um, but also to actually bring 13 of these children to Ireland. And uh, over the period of time, like myself and the missus had talked about whether we'd adopt a child and we just kind of said no, like we couldn't because just we, we, we really wanted to do it, but it was just the notion of taking a child with a learning disability and the effect that it would happen on our own children. It was just too much for us to be able to do and we just said we wouldn't do it, but we do whatever we could for those kids while we could, so we'd support them as best we could. Like other donors, there was exceptional other Irish donors there who had buried massive amounts of money into the charity over the years, putting heating and food and stuff into the place and they were absolutely wonderful people. Um, but I ended up, uh, we, 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 we were trying to negotiate a care home that, but it just so happened that one of the individuals, the, the, the CEO owned the house, um, but it was near, we said we'd buy, we tried buy this house and, uh, because it was near the orphanage and we tried to play six kids in that with a care structure, like what Newell was doing, but I'd give them all the policy procedures, the structures, the ways of training. So we started to put in all the e-learning programs, the training programs with the Moldovan government. And we got a sort of memorandum of understanding with the government that they'd allow this to be legal because you couldn't place a child mm. outside of an orphanage. It wouldn't be legal. So we had to put a legal framework in place. So we did that. And, uh, we did that. And then I said, I'd take the 13 children to Ireland to basically show how people learn disability live in Ireland. So we took them on a tour of Ireland and introduced them to the children. There were some of the children that I cared for over time that they could see, well, look, these, look at these kids. These have gone off and live in completely independent lives. And you could too. But during that time, there was a little girl that I had noticed. I had noticed in that period of time, she was in that group, but she was around seven. And uh, she was... Uh, we had seen her before in the thing, but I hadn't really, I hadn't been around her. And she just, she was hanging around. We, we, we went out for a meal one day with the kids uh, to this big social. We took all the children out. We took them to chocolate factory for the day in Butler's. And, and then my, my kids were all hanging around with this group. And one of the little girls, uh, one of the little girls, uh, my Morgan was sort of being a play act and he was being the funny man. He was mm. only four at the time. And he's being the funny man. He'd be knocked his drink over. He started bawling his eyes out crying because he was embarrassed over spilling the drink because mm. he's a little kid. And this little girl just sort of went up to him and started rubbing his face and hugging him and going, are you all right? It's okay. And just myself and the missus looked at each other and went, no, she's part of, she's our, she's part, she's ours, you know? And uh, just made a commitment to adopt Just like her. that. Just like that, yeah. Made a commitment to adopt her. So like that's, we, that's mad. Yeah, that's we made amazing. a commitment. And we approached the charity director, the, the CEO, and said like, we want to adopt this child. And, uh, it was just, it was, uh, it was, so we made, made a commitment to do it, but we didn't realize it. Like, geez, the, the, so I contacted Tuzla, totally, I came straight back, came straight back and said, like, I'm going to adopt this kid. And they went, oh, well, you know, you can't adopt a child uh, without uh, going to, um, you can't adopt a child without going to, applying to Tuzla first. And by the way, you can't adopt from that country anyway. Like there was 36 countries in the, in the world that you can adopt from. And uh, the but that doesn't mean you are th that the Irish government will facilitate that. They'll only facilitate an adoption where they have a bilateral agreement with the country. It's got an intercountry agreement uh, with, and they only had that with seven countries, and Moldova wasn't one of them. Hey. So they said no. So they said we're not doing it. And I said, well, we are doing it. And they said no, you're not doing that. So I ended up I had to go and challenge the Irish Adoption Authority and go in with them. And they basically and I took a barrister with me and a solicitor with me and said oh, I'm going to adopt I'm going to adopt that child and we want you to set up an intercountry program. And they went. They were fighting and fighting and fighting and I and then the barristers were fighting and I ended up I just said I just we got a hearing with the full board of the Irish Adoption Authority of Ireland and I was warned, I was told by the barrister that they don't typically like intercountry adoption, don't want to do it. They didn't want to do it in the first place, it wouldn't facilitate it. 
and they were bickering away and bickering away and I told everybody to shut up and I said look you don't realize this I just I just finished up retired down on my business around <laughs> three or four months ago I have nothing else to do I'm going to sit outside your office for the next year until you do this and just three of them start laughing and I says I'm deadly serious I says, all I will do is this from now on until you do it and they they let me do it they let me uh, set up the program how long did that take it took three it, it took a long time we had to accredit we had to set up an organization in 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 moldova to uh, get an organization in moldova get an organization in ireland to get accredited they actually wouldn't pay for it they wanted they made it we i had to pay for the whole structure program so we ended up we got the entire program set up i remember going to seek advice from a guy michael who's a sort of well very well-known healthcare entrepreneur and he had gone through the Haiti process and he told me, like, just, he said, look, just do what you can for the child. You might as well give up. You'll never get there. Uh, he tried to do it for Haiti, eventually got it. And one of the child that he was trying to do during that period, sadly died of cholera during the period of time while he was trying to set up the program. He eventually got it, but the government wanted the wanted a Haiti program because they wanted children of colour to be able to adopt it into Ireland. But they didn't want Moldova. They didn't want Moldova to do it. But we eventually got this program set up and established but if you wanted to, if you wanted to adopt a child, you had to go through their process. So I contacted Tuzla during that period saying, like, we're adopting this child. And he says, oh, no, you have to go to the information day for us. Says, When's the information day? Six months time. And I go, what the fuck do you mean six months time? He says, like, this child's over here now. No, no, maybe one in May. Come to the information evening in May. So go to the information evening and eventually you're waiting months to go to the information evening. You go to that, then they allocate. They say, oh, well, look, now we've told you what opt- adoption's all about. You still want to do it? And you're going, fucking absolutely. I told you <laughs> want to do it. Allocate a social worker. Oh, no, that'll be six months. So I had, I just hit the roof. I start saying, look, I start writing letters and I know how to work the system. And I start pushing and pushing and pushing. And they eventually let us allocate us a social worker. And we went to the open evening and the, we did the, we got allocated a social worker for assessment. So we uh, we were pushing and pushing and pushing to get that done and that took that took a long time we had to set up the structures internationally and nationally to get it done but then get assessed at the same time go through the whole process and get approved for adopting and we had to fight because you're not supposed to adopt a child you don't know that you know you go through a period of time where you just say oh, i'm going to adopt a kid i want to adopt a kid and you say they go off and find one for you you're not allowed you have to sort of justify the reasons why you want to adopt that child particularly so we uh, got through all that process and I felt I felt so sorry for people during it because like we had resources, we had the money to pay for all of this. We were able to do it, but there was, it's there was not 20, possible other, for most people. No, 20 other couples there of, of like uh, there was gay couples, there was couples who were a bit older, couples who'd been through all sorts of IVF challenges and everything. And they they were at their last ditch resort to try to find it, have a child and they were just faced with barrier upon barrier upon barrier. And uh and they were just they were there and ready and had the resources and had the love and the ability to do all of this, but they were just being faced with a two year block because just it just was it was just so difficult for them. And these children needed. Hmm. It was like there was one hundred and sixty kids in this home. We were told it was three hundred, but there was one hundred and sixty kids in this home that could have been rehomed and had nobody and would have never had have anybody. But they had stopped this intercountry stuff with people traveling over and adopting the children due to the Romanian stuff that was happening. There was a mad rush on people trying to adopt Romanian babies years ago. So I eventually got, I got, we got, because this was taking so long, I had this child sitting over there and I, we made it, she was ours basically from the get go. So I put her in a, I hired a foster care worker, I hired a, I hired a foster mother over there and hired a house. And put her in there, and basically we treated her as her own. We used to fly her back and forth on all school summer summer holidays, and uh, 
take her back and forth as much as we could. So she was back and forth for around four or five months a year while all this was going on. So it took around four years to do that. Four years. Yeah. But during that period, uh, oh, we started to get approached. It was things weren't right in the charity over there that I was working with because I was I was I'm an expert. At this, so I know the finances. I know how things work. And I was arriving over and I was there a lot. And nobody has ever been out there a lot. Like mm. The Irish directors of this place never really went out. They never went out and saw what was going on. There was one operator, the CEO over there, an Irish person who was working, running the, the show out there, but all Moldovans. And uh, there was all these sort of budget lines. There was all like drivers and there was, they had these sort of full cost lines for everything you were doing. So I was sponsoring all of this, but I was saying, I was saying, look, where's the, where's this person? They're not there. And he said, oh, they, they are there. They are there. And I said, oh, look, come on now. I said, like, I'm running service like this for years. I said, there's a bit of fat in this here. Hmm. I said, you're making that cost line up. And just I said, just tell me you're making it up. And uh, I I don't mind because I know you have to have an extra bit of fat in this stuff hmm. because you need to be able to run your service. And no, no, you're wrong. And uh, I went, mm. and at the time we were starting to get... We were starting to get approached by the people that we were hiring going, you need to leave here. This is bad here. You do, you are, you'll never be allowed to adopt that child. That will never be, never happen. They don't want you to adopt that child. They want you just to be attached to that child. So you'll keep paying, Fuck. but you, uh, they don't want you to have it. And these are the people, these are the Moldovans telling us this. These are the Moldovans saying, you, this is bad. You need to leave. You need to get out of here. You need to get away from this. And one of the care homes that I was looking at by, and I had, I, I said, like, that person, that person, there's, there's no drivers here. The driver is this person's husband, and he's the person doing it. And this person over here, that's person, that's the same thing. The same person is doing this job and this job. So there's, I could calculate there was somebody getting three salaries over here, another person getting three salaries over here. So I started to push against it a bit, and then I started to get major pushback and shut down. And uh, it came to a cusp when, um, came to a cusp when, the house that we we're looking to buy was owned by this individual and uh, it was agreed to be bought. They transferred the deposit over to themselves from the bank account, the whole lot. And uh, we, I, I said, look, we need to get board approval from the charity and uh, to get this because it's a, it's a, it's a related party transaction because you own it. And I've approved that we'll buy it. And we thought it was a bit expensive, but we didn't know. But the charity just, the, the board, the charity freaked out and said, no, under no circumstance uh, is this happening. Uh, you're, that's not being sold that's not you can't take the money for that house they wouldn't allow them to do it and things just completely imploded then it was uh it was uh things completely turned on its head and i was um marched uh, i i was basically getting messages going oh well you know you need to understand how things work over here and this is moldova this is in ireland and you need to you need to you need to be you need to play the system over here and if you won't things won't work out for you you won't get things done over here so and when they were saying things won't get done were they talking about your daughter as well oh yeah there was the, the basically my child was living in a in a support living environment house at the time and it was one one major thing happened and i was in a meeting i was at this child remember i i was in the meeting about uh sort of onward foster care placing because we were trying to we were building capacity in the system the healthcare system over there so the healthcare system of moldova they adopted our system they adopted all newest training programs and they still to this day they're using all newest training programs for training uh, for children but we were basically looking at sort of trying to rehome and move the children into foster care placements and um i uh we were talking about trying to move key children up and the original ch child that I had been fond of was sitting on my knee. We were looking at uh, trying to get her an mm. onward foster care placement and thing. And it came up that 
the mother had rocked into the the mother had rocked into the orphan and said, I want to take my child back. Just like that. Yeah. But like I said, but I said, but that that mother was beaten to death. Yeah. And she says, I said, oh, no, no, I never said that. I said, you fucking did say that. I said that you told me that that child's mother was beaten to death in front of her. And that's why she was in care. No, I never said that. And three of the other donors in the similar position to me, wealthy guys, were told the same story about the same child, about the same thing. And were flogged this whole thing about you could adopt this child, but you can never adopt that child because she didn't have status to be adopted. She, was a, she wasn't adoptable because she had a mother. She was in the system. She was in the foster care system. And they knew this. But they were playing everyone. But they were playing this. So basically, I describe, like, I looking back, this this whole system, this whole cute kid area with these 13 kids was the marketing department. They mm. had these beautiful, lovely children who could speak English, who were cute, who used to sit on the laps of, like, wealthy men to go, like, to make them feel sorry to death and to invest in the charity. And to some of the people that were, like, I got away, I got away with maybe... I got, well, relatively 200,000 I started was spent at that point in time into the charity. But I know there was probably, there was tens upon tens and tens of millions that went into this charity before me into this charity. And I and started... Who was getting the money? Well, it was going into the charity. Like it transpired later what we what we uncovered uh, over the course of what happened. So things started to deteriorate. Mm. I, this person wasn't, this person turned around to me and said, if you don't, told the line over here things are going to change for you and basically started to like i, I was hearing that the, they were planning on closing the house down and the rent was made now all the rent was paid i was paying the rent I was paying for my daughter's care i was paying mm. everybody and everything and there's rumblings about that that and i flew over an emergency i flew over and had a meeting with this person an irish person and a Moldovan doctor in a lo- lobby of a hotel over in Moldova. And I was ba- I basically sort of looked at, well, what's going on? Just look, just don't, I want, I don't, I don't want things to fall apart. We wanted to do this transaction. Your board says you weren't allowed to do it. So we're put, like, I can't do anything about that. I said, like, I, I will buy another house. We'll get another one. You just go find another house. No, transfer all the money over to our account now. And I went, well, no, I'm not doing, I'm not transferring 150,000 over to buy a house now or 120,000. I said, about seeing the house. I said, you show me the house. I said, you need to know how things work in Moldova and you need to pay and you need to transfer the money over this now. This is an Irish man. There's an Irish person who told us to me, Irish person, a woman, uh, said, you need to transfer this money over to now or we're shutting down all, the, or things are going to go bad for you over here. We're shutting things down. And I'm going, I said, well, I said, look, I'm, I said, I, I'm happy to, of course, I just find a house, just find another house and I'll buy that house and we'll put the kids into that house. And they went, no. Uh, and and I flew away thinking that everything was uh, okay and that it was going to be resolved. Did you transfer? No. And I started to hear around, I stopped being able to, now this is now, I my I had a daughter, wait, but she wasn't ours, she wasn't adopted yet. But in but your head. In ours, she was adopted. And we had full access, she had internet connection, she had, she had living in a house and we stopped getting phone contact from her from uh that next morning that must have been terrifying we were completely cut off from her uh and we had no contact with her for around three or four days we started to get calm phone calls from the people around the moldovans going we don't believe this is happening this is terrible she had basically been my daughter had been collected from school that day that very day put in a van and brought back to the orphanage and said, this is where you live now and your dad's gone. Fuck off. Yeah. And uh, he doesn't, he, he they, they didn't pay the rent and everything's gone. He's not here anymore and it's gone. It's over. They told her that? They told her that. So at that time, I, I, I started to realize that things had started to go a bit bad 
and uh, I'd start to mooch other people in the system. So the the department, the the minister for health of for and disabilities was retiring, and she'd only gone out of a job. And I couldn't I couldn't hire her because it would have been corrupt because she was she was a, a a public representative, but she had retired, and she was gone to work for UNICEF. So I I hired her the following week or or the week before I started to talk to her about, I hadn't hired her yet, but I started to talk to her about trying to work for me because I said I wasn't getting on with the Irish charity over there. I started to see big problems, all sorts of issues around. I couldn't understand where money was going. I couldn't understand staffing resources, where people were. The Moldovan staff were telling me that people were being pulled in off the fields to come and wear t-shirts and to appear like those loads of staff on the Irish were coming. And this was coming from the Moldovans. The Moldovans were telling me this. And uh, there's this one picture of me that was taken uh, with 40, the people that I had funded originally, these 40 carers. And she told me that it was all fake and it was only around, there was, none of them were on the payroll. They were just brought in for the photo, brought in for the day to work. That. So I, I knew things were going awry. So I, I had this uh, Moldovan woman uh and she pulled strings and uh, with, because the Moldovans were horrified that this was after him. They were horrified that they were after cutting because it was bad. It was obviously it was a horrible thing to happen to this child. So I managed to get Andrea out on a special visa the following day to Spain or uh, Canaries or somewhere because she could go under a Schengen and got her out on a holiday and pulled her out. And then basically, I remember bawling her eyes. She was in the she met us. So she met us over there with the foster care worker and was bawling her eyes out, crying. I thought you'd left. I thought you'd left me. That's shocking. Mm-hmm. So I went ballistic, obviously. went ballistic about this. I went to the board of the charity, complained. I was initially greeted with absolute horror and go, why are you doing this? Why are you, doing, why are you saying all this stuff? Why are you saying this about the charity? They didn't believe you. They didn't believe me. And they didn't believe me. And this is why can't, they couldn't understand why. They, they didn't believe me, but they couldn't understand why she would have done that, why she would close down the house because we knew they had money. And even when they, even I transferred 10,000 euros over to them the next day afterwards to ensure because they were saying we know money to run this house anymore it's all gone all the funds are gone and that was at the precursor for that was because they said they had ran out of money and we said well look we gave you six months worth of money up front mm. it's three months into the project where is it all gone show us your accounts no just transfer the money transfer the money they were they wouldn't give us the accounts and when they were giving us the accounts they were changing all the time so different cost lines were changing all the time and uh, I basically transferred 10 grand over to, as a buffer to stop the house closing down, but they close it down anyway. And the deposit had been taken for the house already. There was like, so there was loads of money in the account to run the operation that was there, but she shut it all down uh, immediately. So I went to directly to the, the I went to the charity, uh, the board. They, uh, I went to them and told them everything that I had thought was happening with the cost lines and everything. Uh, they didn't believe me. The wife was actually disgusted at me that I would do such a thing because they thought this person was an angel. They were going fundraisers in the Shelburne all the time. They thought this person was an absolute angel. They were saving kids and all the language they were using. They go, if you don't put this money in, this child will die. Okay. You have to do this. These children are dying. Children are dying. Children are dying. This is all you ever heard was children are dying. No one fucking dying. Like the, it wasn't happening. Like you know, this was, this was so putting the guilt trip on. Putting the guilt trip on everybody because they wanted the money off them because the children were dying. That's shocking. Okay? Yeah. Um. So. They, uh, so basically I went to the charity and I reported everything that I'd seen. The chairman actually went over and did his own investigation, basically substantiated everything that I had said, Thank what God. was going on, but was he shocked? We couldn't get the whole board to agree. And basically him and around two or three other people resigned from the board. A new board took over. 
basically uh what was happening was for years this is the crux of it what was happening was that uh basically the money was being fundraised around four or five hundred thousand euros a year was being fundraised in ireland in an irish charity being bought in an irish charity it was being transferred over to a moldovan entity in a person's name it was being withdrawn in cash and put in a safe and distributed in cash so basically, when the, the when the chairman at the time of the board went over to evaluate what was happening to the spot check, they found the same person's name on seven withdrawals. Uh, there was the same person signing for the, the 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 tens upon tens of staff or hundreds of staff that they had weren't there that day when the payday came. There was only seven or eight people who were drawing the funds that he said. So he put forward around fifty things to the board and said that we need to do something about it and. They didn't. They uh, three of the three Is of the board still going on. Three of the board members resigned. The three in place. They uh, they they uh, contracted an independent review. They said with an independent auditor. The independent auditor came and chatted to me briefly, and never went back to the then chairman and asked him about what he had found. A very narrow terms of reference. Basically, wrote a rubbish report that I never seen was never handed to me, never made available, never made public. Um, sent that off to the charities regulator and basically insinuated that I had some sort of a personal issue with this individual and that's what the crux of it was and that uh, that was the reason for everything happening. But we found out just the amount of information that we found out over the years that happened uh, but um we couldn't uh like we we just like and we weren't the first there was there was th- two other organizations separate to somebody around 15 years ago that did the same thing as us, went out and invested, had a, an absolutely horrific time with this charity, actually went to the DPP about something that had happened out there between one of the founders and one of the service users, and it never came to anything because of the jurisdictional issues. And another person I know went out and did the same problem, had massive amounts of money that was misused, but they just, everything was in cash, and the department, the, uh, you couldn't prove, and you couldn't prove that any money had gone anywhere. Yeah. Because everything was done in cash, so um, so that's a that a, was an eye opener, an eye opener. But I did, I got there in the end. I got, we got there in the end. We got her, we got her two years ago. What was so that like? It was absolutely. I didn't think I was. It was like I felt like a kidnapper because I was getting her. I had the plane. <laughs> I, I was. I had to live in Moldova for six months while all that was going on. Did you? And right at the end, they needed one parent to actually be in the country for six months to to or three, four months at the end for the final assessment. They allowed Jade to stay back and mind the other kids. But I had to live in the middle of COVID. I lived in Moldova in a hotel. And um, basically, it was really funny because she's like a teenager. So you'd be gone. She doing it was in her house with her foster care worker that I had set up. I managed to get I managed to. It was, it was hilarious because when things went bad with that charity, I had just been getting to know this other charity called P4EC, who actually did provide paperwork, who did provide receipts, who did provide accounts, who did provide everything. And they were the Moldovans. They were supposedly the dodgy ones. Mm. And they were squeaky clean about everything. Had full audit reports and everything. They were so, and they were so embarrassed and so pissed that they could have been represented in this mm. way, that they were neglecting their own children and that their children were dying. And they were, like, it no was children. making them look bad. No children dying here. Like, we wouldn't let our children die. Like, you know, it wasn't particularly good care, but they wouldn't let their children die either. They cared for the citizens. They were pissed that this was all going on. And I had been like, you're right. You were, you didn't realize how much you were being managed. Like you were being brought in at the dead of night to yeah. an unlocked location yeah, yeah. in the dark. It's like the a snow, movie scene. Like a movie scene. And there was a movie about this, an adoption one. And you felt threatened all the time. You thought you were at risk of something going to happen. But um, then when I rocked into P4, started working with P4C and I got my daughter into this new house 
with a new so uh, foster care worker she worked with us for in two years carlene and she was a lovely girl lovely woman she gave up her life to basically mind our child for two years while the adoption thing was going on and run like sort of a like a like, like boarding school really she was just living in another country she was on the phone every day she's in school but uh she gave up her life to that but the uh for two years to work for us but um when we were dealing with them when we were dealing with this new crew we like we only realized that moldova is like a gorgeous country it's like a real cosmopolitan center to mm. it. Kishnow is a beautiful city. Like you can go out to top restaurants and there was like bar, like my daughter loved this sushi restaurant that we used to go to. So we were managed. We were thought this was this bleak, horrible, yeah. uh, Eastern block country. Which you were only shown what, you they, were only wanted shown what they wanted to see. And then all of a sudden you were out in this cosmopolitan city and it was gorgeous. You go for walks in the park and doing cool things. And we were just managed all through that period. And, I was terrified. I was. I'm still terrified because the individual in question has loads of power, loads of connections. And still, still, and still over there, loads of connections, loads of power over there. And we were um, at one point, um, bizarrely, my entire social work file disappeared from the Moldovan system. Just disappeared, like it went. It. Uh, we had a full follow, a folder on file on the adoption in Moldova, and it just dis- squarely now disappeared from the social work department over there. And we had we had we had copies of everything all the time. We always had copies of stuff, so we were able to replace it. But um, we had complete independence from the Irish organisation then, and ran our own program. And still to this day, are running the like I'm committed to. I'm committed to finishing out what I started and building the services out there of a day service that's been built at the moment on the second home, the third one's coming. And I think this particular individual thought I was going to go away and the type of person will go away. You're still I, there. And I'll never go away. And I'll never, ever stop until this particular person has found out and shown what they've actually done, no matter what, if they can prove it or not. you know. And even then, there was, a, there was an article, there was a... A newspaper article there a while ago about it that they spent uh they did an investigative journalist went over and uncovered that the house in question was never actually owned by the individual in the first so it was owned by the charity and it somehow transferred into the ownership of the family at some point in time and then transferred and they were looking to buy it back so it never was owned and there was uh all these questions but that's been buried like somebody's paid for that to disappear into the ether it's they've run a massive pr campaign that the newspaper articles and investigations have been that's basically dealt crazy with. Yeah. Well, here's a wood from the trees yeah. promise. Watch your back. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I'm so not asking her. any so more questions yeah, after yeah, that yeah, bombshell because yeah. that's just... Yeah. But I tell you, that's an amazing thing to yeah. do. And I I love getting people like you on because I don't think you... You don't give yourself enough credit and you probably don't want it. But you're an amazing man. You do so many good things for people and you're a credit... If there was more people like you in the world, we'd have a, a way nicer world to live in. Sure, look, you just keep your head down and do what you have to do every day and keep going, you know. So, well, Thanks a million for coming on. Yeah, I'll yeah. have to get you on again. You have too many good stories. I never even got to, to the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks good a million, Ed. Cheers. Sound. Thanks a million.